Ladies and gentlemen, we, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Hello and welcome to this Tuesday, June 5th, 2018 edition of the Hagman Report. So glad to be here with you tonight. We have a fantastic show planned for you tonight. Stan Deo is going to be back with us. He's going to be on for the whole second half of the show. And what he's going to be doing is talking about, (coughs) excuse me, he's going to be talking about his return trip from Africa Many of you who are regular listeners of the show know that he has been off the last few weeks as he went to what he believes is the literal place of the Garden of Eden, the original Garden of Eden. I want to ask him about that today, though, because I was uh, reading up on a number of different insights that people had uh, since the beginning of, of recorded history throughout today. And many people believe that the Garden of Eden was not a physical place, but rather a spiritual dimension, which was banished after the fall of man. But either way, from 8.30 to 10 tonight, Stan's going to be joining us with uh, his two guests, Jared and Christina. They're going to be coming on to talk about their company. They're the ones that have the uh, Black Sea Jewelers dot uh, com. So that's going to be very interesting because I know we've received a whole bunch of emails from people asking when Stan's coming back, asking if he is going to be talking about his trip to Africa. We have had emails asking for updates throughout the last few weeks, so that's going to be good. Okay, so news-wise, what we got to get into in this first segment, there's a lot of pretty interesting news, uh, some of it important, and I was going to start somewhere else, but let's start here. What we saw today was supposed to be the Inspector General's report. We were supposed to have the 500-page Inspector General's report on the FBI's handling of the 2016 Hillary Clinton email investigation. Now, that was pushed back until Monday, June 11th. So that's still on track for June 11th. But interestingly enough, we're I want to say we're getting leaks from the IG report or People are speculating about what's in it, but I I seem to believe this is more than speculation. This is somebody's telling secrets. Demoted FBI agent Peter Strauch had larger role in Clinton, Russia probes than previously known. Peter Strauch, everybody knows the Strauch page text messages. Strauch was pulled off the special counsel Mueller investigative team last year. He played more of a central role than previously known in both the Russia and Hillary Clinton email probes, a lawmaker familiar with the matter told Fox News Tuesday. The lawmaker's assessment of Strauch's role in both investigations was based on the most recent uh, records and testimony, including a closed-door interview with the FBI espionage chief, Bill Priestep. Priestep was interviewed Tuesday as part of an ongoing joint investigation by the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees, Priestep was Strauch's supervisor and oversaw both the Russian and Clinton investigations. Now, what does this all mean? 
we see <clears throat> that they are alluding to the fact that he had larger roles, meaning he probably had more control, more resources uh, over the investigations and in the, in the directions where they went. But is that going to matter? And I think it will matter a lot. Once we see what the IG report on the Clinton email probe uh, comes back with, 500 pages, it's obviously going to be a pretty big and thorough report. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens with that. But uh, right now you have people you know, speculating and, and anonymous sources saying this is what's going on. Strauch has a much larger role in this thing than people realize. Now, kind of jumping around here, I want to talk about something that I didn't plan on talking about today until I saw the article on the Drudge Report. Going back to InfoWars, Bilderberg globalists concerned about populist uprising in Europe. Elitist confab set to meet in Turin, Italy. Now, we've been talking about Italy over the last few days as they have been having a pretty big economic issue I guess you could say leaning towards a, a, a collapse in solvency. And we have the annual Bilderberg meeting that is going to be held in Europe, and specifically in Italy. We've seen the populist movement with Brexit. We saw it with a Portugal vote that was voted on, apparently illegally. They weren't allowed to hold the vote, but they did anyway. And you had a huge turnout and protests in the streets uh, until they were squashed by the government. And now you see other EU nation states that are having problems themselves with the economy, with insolvency. And they see that being part of this big Euro state is not benefiting them economically. So the globalist, the powers that be, are wondering, is this populism movement going to sweep across Europe and break up the EU? Now this is what the article says, and, and I, I love Infowars, I love Paul Joseph Watson. Uh, it says the uh, annual elitist confab is set to meet this week in Turin, an appropriate venue given that Italy, Italy has just elected an anti-mass migration Eurosceptic coalition government. According to the group's official website, the number one topic of conversation at this year's secretive meeting will be the populism in Europe. Now, this is where I have a problem. Okay, According to the group's website, the number one topic at this year's secretive meeting will be populism in Europe. If you have a website advertising the agenda, how secretive can it be? And we had, uh, goodness, who was it that came on? John, you might remember this. It was uh, John Rappaport. And we were talking about the real power, which is in the Trilateral Commission, and how there's no media attention given to that, no coverage of their meetings, no agenda published. I think the Bilderberg Group, more and more, is there to draw... I mean, maybe they do accomplish some things. Maybe they do get some things done. But I think the majority of what is hidden from the public is done via the Trilateral Commission. You get no press, no coverage, no leaks. And it seems like the Bilderberg, you know, they're uh, open for business. Journalists and everybody is welcome. Hey, check their website. They'll tell you exactly what they're going to talk about. <laughs> I don't know. That's just my opinion. Well, unless Alex Jones uh, shows up for Bilderberg, in which case they'll pull some fire alarms and we'll get a, a live stream uh, that shows people running down a hallway. But, uh, Joe, the, the Bilderberg group, you know, it's it's appropriate that you would open up with that this evening because we are – we talked about this today on the Hagman Daily Show. Uh, today, uh, June 5th, 
1968, and it's actually June 5th, 6th, was when America lost one of our great statesmen in the form of Robert Kennedy. So uh, if listeners would like to check that out, uh, the Hagman Daily Show today, Joe and I did a, a piece that, Joe, I, I really enjoyed, uh, that was about a half hour long. Yeah, well, it was pretty good. Um, it was all right. The reason I bring up this this uh, RFK component is because Henry Kissinger is, in my opinion, the elder American statesman to whom all up-and-coming politicos have to go and kiss the ring. Now, we saw this, Joe, in 2008 when both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama disappeared from the campaign trail for three days, and I think many in our audience suppose, as do I, that... In fact, no, they did. They admitted it later. Oh, they did. And I, but what I think happened at that, at that little three day departure is I think that some people like Kissinger and his ilk made the decision as to who would be the candidate for the general election that year for the Democratic Party. And when we look at the era of John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy that ultimately led into the presidency of Richard Nixon, his resignation, and then Gerald Ford, we get Henry Kissinger, who starts out as Nixon's national security advisor, <laughs> but then becomes Secretary of State. Now, people may wonder, why am I going on this, this rant oh, no, about history? Important. It's super important, because what we're witnessing, and we'll be joined here shortly by Stephen Minking, and we'll get his comments, but what we're witnessing today, uh, whether it's you know the additional few cents every week at the pump, or more importantly, the number of U.S. dollars that are in circulation around the world, the petrodollar scheme was cooked up by Henry Kissinger. So I submit to our listeners and viewers, had Robert Kennedy not been gunned down on June 5th, 6th in 1968, 50 years ago, we you can argue that we would have never had Henry Kissinger in that power position. And Joe, that could potentially mean that we would have never had the petrodollar scheme. Imagine how different the world would be if we had not been exporting our inflation to every country on the planet. Yeah, that, that's uh, absolutely correct. And he is a Henry Kissinger is a war criminal in a number of nations. I'm looking here. <clears throat> of course, I don't I don't see it on the on the Wikipedia page right off the bat. But you know, he uh, I guess what he's most famous for is his uh, his his globalist mind. He's written a number of books. But it seems like every president that we've had, except Donald Trump, as far as back as I can remember, starting with Bush one. Every time he was asked his opinion about the incoming president, his exact words would be, "Well, I think this uh, he will bring a new world order." I can't even do it. <laughs> no, you're here. actually doing a pretty good job. He said it with uh, he said it with Bush one. He said it with Clinton. He said it with Bush two. He said it with uh, Obama. Uh, he said it about Hillary Clinton just before she lost the election. Every time he was on TV, well, I really think they can bring in a new world order. That's all he ever says anymore. He even wrote a book in 2014 called "A New World Order." It's not even original anymore. And I don't know, he, he's old. He's getting up there in years. Definitely, if he wasn't such an evil genius, like Zbigniew Brzezinski was, uh, he'd be much more well-respected. But I can't respect somebody who has indiscriminately killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, just in Vietnam alone, just to to prove a point or to get your way or to, or, or to push your agenda through. It wasn't for any... You know, uh, you know, retaliation or payback for an equal attack. It was, uh, I guess you'd call it human rights violations is what it was. Well, consider this. Uh, in 2011, former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, who had several years earlier published his book, Fog of War, and then there was a 
uh, documentary of this by the same name subsequently, he admitted, and I want to remind all of our listeners this, he admitted that the Gulf of Tonkin was a false flag. He admitted it to the Harvard alumni uh, graduation ceremony, I believe, Joe, in 2011. So uh, two things to consider. The position of National Security Advisor, it's been held, as you said, Joe, by Zibanu Brzezinski, who was the National Security Advisor for Jimmy Carter. It's been held by Kissinger, who was the National Security Advisor for Nixon. It's been held by Condoleezza Rice, who was the National Security Advisor for George W. Bush. And it seems like a position, a cabinet-level position, that, 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 that the deep state seems to focus their motivation on. And, of course, we'd be remiss before we move on, Joe, not to consider that uh, you mentioned the Trilateral Commission. They publish a magazine. If you want to know all about the Trilateral Commission, all you've got to yeah. do is take a look at The Economist. And, and Peter Chalka just sent us an email saying that the Council on Foreign Relations is much more powerful and secretive than the Trilateral Commission. And I, I know it has, uh, you have these different organizations inside the government, like the, uh, uh, it's just a, it's a play on words. It's not the Council on Foreign Relations, it's the, the, I can't think of it. I'll look it up. Uh, it's future, like the, future Farmers of America? No, it's not the CFR. <laughs> it's like the, the CRF or something like that. Uh, but, Peter, Peter, if you can hit send us another no, email. We'll, the, <laughs> we'll, we'll find it. But, yeah, the Council on Foreign Relations is a, a very uh, big deal. But, yes, them and, and the trial. I, I focus more on the Trilateral Commission because of the symbolism. When you go in and you read the uh, Luciferian agenda of the U.N. and you look at the purpose behind the, the triangles, the pyramid or, or triangles, it is... Uh, it goes back to Enochian occultic magic. And I think there, at least from my own observations, there's a lot more secretive stuff that goes on at Trilateral Commission because we see the Council on Foreign Relations is much more open to uh, people from all governments of the world as well as members of, of business and, and banking and whatnot. But either way, these groups operate in the shadows. And I think Bilderberg, has really come out in the forefront to take the spotlight off of these other groups. And, you know, if you talk about this kind of stuff in, uh, in the mainstream media, oh, you'll get called a conspiracy theorist, you'll be called a kook, even though it's right in your face and they're even advertising what, you know, what, what it is that they're doing. But again, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are many other groups. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's a few we don't even know the names of that meet that have just as much, if not more, influence than Bilderberg or even the Trilateral Commission. So, very interesting. But that is when, when is that going to be meeting? In, uh, I believe this month. I'm not sure. I will, uh, I, I did not do my due diligence here before <laughs> getting into this topic, but. Well, while you're searching for that, uh, Joe, I have a question for you. Sure. You've been mentioning a book. You mentioned it on the Hagman Daily Show earlier today. And I'm going to mention one also. Because uh, something I learned years ago from Doug Hagman, and by the way, thank you, Doug, for the honor of uh, sitting in on the show this evening. But we need to always remember that we've got new listeners and new viewers, and in as much as our, our veteran viewers will hang with us, we've got to bring people up to speed on many of these issues because they're so critical. Uh, I would recommend a book published in the 1980s by Stephen Ambrose of Band of Brothers fame, uh, called Rise to Globalism. And, uh, Joe, with that being said, the book that you're reading right now, it seems to be really making an impact. Uh, the one I, I mentioned one earlier called, uh, The Globalist Syndrome. That, I read that a while back, but there's one that I've been reading, an older book based on, uh, scripture, which is called Past, Present, and Future. But the Bilderberg meeting, 
It's going to be taking place from the 7th to the 10th of June, 2018, in Turin, Italy. Now, is it a coincidence that my father will be leaving town tomorrow and will not be back until next Monday? That, wouldn't that be cool if he was completely, <laughs> that would be if he was completely duping us? It has nothing to do with it, but <laughs> I thought that was funny. You know, uh, uh, just quickly, I just want to do one little teeny tiny piece of housekeeping because I'm, <clears throat> I'm so excited I almost can't control myself right now behind the, uh, the production desk. Uh, Doug Hagman will have an announcement next week. Uh, for all of our listeners and viewers. And, uh, Joe, I just want to thank everyone who has hung with us for all these years and been there, uh, like many of us have since almost day one, just, just praying for this show and helping us build and expand because we received word, uh, approximately an hour, hour and a half ago from a dear friend of the program, Keith Hansen, who joins us, uh, this Thursday evening as he does every Thursday. And we have something phenomenal uh, happening uh, at this program. And its I, I think it's safe to say it's one of the biggest endeavors that the Hagman Report has ever been blessed to be part of. And, Joe, I just wanted to thank all the listeners and viewers because their prayers every day are what, in the spiritual realm, intercede and, and, and knock down the barriers so that these amazing things can happen and that we can better nourish uh, everybody who gives us their time of day. Absolutely, and um, i really looking forward to hearing more about that opportunity and, and the announcement that we're going to be making, because uh, that is a big deal, and it's going to have a huge impact. I guess I overlooked something in the coverage of the Straub text messages. This is much bigger than this Fox News article um, made it out to be. So here, here's what the Gateway Pundit and Jim Hoff from the Gateway Pundit says, Breaking. Senate releases unredacted Strauch page text messages showing FBI initiated multiple spies in Trump campaign in December of 2015. This would be well before any official investigation was started. Hidden in the information of the, the, the U.S. Senate today released over 500 pages of information related to the Spygate scandal. scandal. Hidden in the information are unredacted Strauch page texts that show the FBI initiated actions to insert multiple spies in the Trump campaign in December of 2015. Once again, Internet sleuths unearthed the damning evidence that the FBI was engaged in Spygate long before they let on. And this goes on to cite an earlier report about James Comey telling lawmakers Monday that his agency had been investigating multiple, uh, investigating possible coordination between Trump campaign and Russian officials since last July 2016. But the newly released timeline, which Comey detailed in a much-anticipated House Intelligence Committee hearing, means the FBI probe was occurring during the peak of an alleged Russian campaign to destabilize the presidential race and eventually help elect President Trump. Who wrote that? That is a... He's quoting... That's a... Uh, Hoft quoting from a another article. Well, Jim's a fine writer, to be sure. Politico, sorry, this political. He even points out that that is political, um, and, and I don't. The, the Russians didn't have any influence on the. If Russia didn't exist, <clears throat> and we did it all over again, it would not be any different. Joe, let me ask you a question. But this is big, John. Oh, it, it's ginormous, uh, and and I'm I'm curious what the listeners think and uh, viewers as well. Uh, uh, give us a shout at uh, studio at hagmanreport.com and we'll take a look here in real time. Joe, how many people do you think on the left, uh, the hard left over to 
I guess if there's a such thing as a moderate progressive. How many people do you think really believe the Russia Gate story? On the left? Yeah, ver- they, like genuinely believe it versus they kind of push it to the back of their head and go, well, we'll do whatever it takes to get rid of Trump. Well, see, that's just the thing. I don't think there's a difference there. I think that the, the most rabid anti-Trump leftist, it, it's like a faith. It, it's part of their doctrine. It doesn't matter if they believe it or not. They're going to... Uh, you know, promote it and, and, you know, continue to say, oh, Russia, Russia, Russia. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton really won the election. And if it wasn't for Russia, it doesn't matter if they believe it or not. They just hate Trump so much. I mean, these people hate Trump so much that they will embrace the devil himself before giving Donald Trump a chance. And they've done so. I mean, not, you know, literally in your face, but they have done so. And you can, I mean, just look at an article I was, I was going to cover before I saw this other news. Huffington Post asserts Islam and LGBT communities go great together. I mean, do these people, <laughs> it, it, this is the part that's messed up because they know what Islam uh. does in many countries where they have Islamic rule, what they do to homosexuals. Yeah, well, uh, you mean like throwing them off buildings? Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a sin punishable by death in that religious system. So how do they fit together? And look what else the Huffington Post said today. Christians need to repent for an anti-LGB culture of death. Well, they got the first half of that right. Oh, <laughs> we goodness. we all do need to repent. Probably probably many of us daily. But you know, Joe, uh, my take on this is is pretty simple. But here it is, and I'll bounce it off you. The liberal mindset in America today, I think, begins with a a self-loathing Jesus admonished us and reminded us in in the gospel not to to, I like to say it like this before you worry about the plank in in my eye or Joe's eye take the lumber yard out of your own and I think where this liberal sickness this mental illness begins is a a self-loathing that is so pronounced it's easier to project what you think is best because you love everybody so much on others rather than do some serious self-assessment. Joe, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I have a whole forest in my eye. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. Uh, but, no, these people are, uh, on the left, they don't believe in God. They don't have morals that they, uh, they, they don't have a code uh, that they go by. They don't have a higher power who laid out, uh, you know, do's and don'ts, what's right and what's wrong. And, and this is one of the big problems with society today. As far as the left is concerned, and many, uh, you know, uh, I guess atheists, there is no right and wrong. And this is how they are able to push the boundaries so far like they are able to with the you know most extreme cases, the abortions, the uh, promoting transgenderism to children. They do not know what the Bible... They do not believe in the Bible. They don't believe in God. If they did, there's no way that they would be able to promote that agenda. I just... I don't see it. And... and it is a spiritual battle. It is a division along spiritual lines. Uh, you know, many people, and, and back to this Huffington Post article, because this all ties in together. What they say here is that, um, and this is from Newsbusters, who is uh, pointing out this Huffington Post article. Don't you love it when lefties lecture you about your own Christian faith, twisting the words of Christ in an attempt to guilt you out of your own morals and standards? Granted, everyone, especially Christians, should be aware of proper charity to marginalized individuals. But when liberals preach that it's not so much about loving the sinner 
as it is blindly accepting the tenets of the anti-Christian gay agenda. It becomes clear that it's not about leveling the playing field. For Pride Month 2018, Huffington Post published an article that titled, Why and How Christians Should Celebrate Pride Month. Well, to wary conservatives, it should read, Repent and believe in the liberal gospel of LGBTQ politics. Of course, this article's main premise was that Pride Month should be a time where not just the uh, secular population has a uh, reconciliation with the gay lifestyle, but that it's also the perfect time for Christians to celebrate the gay lifestyle too. Well, let me tell you something. And it goes on to say this, one more sentence. Well, more like beg for forgiveness, it's only right. Huffington Post claimed that in many ways Pride Month became necessary because of homophobic Christians. What they're doing here, full well knowing that to Christians, homosexuality is a sin. It would be like asking a Christian organization, a Christian church, a Christian movement to promote adultery, to promote theft to promote murder it's the same thing there can be no unification between Christians and Pride Month the most cooperation out of Christians you're going to get on Pride Month I would hope is just that they ignore it because it has nothing to do with them it has to do with the world and this is the problem with the divide we have in our country it, that gap cannot be bridged are, are we to make friends and tolerate evil in order to to uh, bridge that divide? I don't think so. I'm not going to accept the abortions, the transgenderisms, the uh, you know whatever they're doing, the, the pride months to go along to get along. Not when it goes against what I believe and what we're told to, to believe and how we're told to practice those beliefs. Now, we say it all the time. In our own rights, we're some of the worst sinners. But don't ask me to promote sin on top of that. I, I got a bad enough case. Amen. All right, when we come back, we're going to be joined by Stephen Menking. And John and I, Was that, that was last weekend, Memorial Day weekend. We did an interview. And our interview is up on Hagman Report. Uh, Stephen posted that last last week on Wednesday, I believe. So if you have not heard that and you want to listen to it, just bookmark that for a later date and uh, check it out. It was a good, it was a good interview. But when we come back, we're going to talk with him about a number of things uh, from the latest political and economic job numbers, oil, and much more. Don't go anywhere. And welcome back to this segment number two on this Tuesday edition of the Hagman Report. We're a little disorganized here, kind of taking it easy. It's John's going to be co-hosting with me the rest of the week as uh, my father has a business trip to attend, very uh, uh, productive one. Uh, but say your prayers. He has been under the weather the last few days, and it's been pretty bad. Um, he, did, he didn't look too good today. He's, uh, he's toughing it out, still getting ready, uh, but... Keep him in your prayers because he still definitely is not feeling right. You know, Joe, I want to jump in on that one. I can't 
thank we talk about this uh privately a lot there are days where you know maybe i feel like i'm having an off day and and i can literally feel joe the prayers that people lift up for us i think that's that's probably my one of my top favorite things about this this job is that people who we haven't even had the pleasure yet to meet and hopefully we will get to someday um, are praying for us, and they're praying for this show. And and there are days where, uh, yet last night and tonight are, bo- are both a little bit like funky, funky, clunky. But mm-hmm. I can I can feel the prayers. I really can. And and when, one more thing I'd like to add about prayer quickly, and then I've got kind of a strange article before we bring in Stephen. But uh, I put a post-it note. I talked to Pastor Mike Spalding last week, and I've been going through, as I said, some personal self-assessment, you could say. And I said, Pastor Mike, I'm going to wake up every morning, and first thing I'm going to pray. And that might sound like silly, stupid, and I'm, I'm probably most of you folks do it already, but uh, I put a little post-it right on my uh, on the headboard of my bed, and all it says on it in black sharpie is pray. And so the last several days I've been doing this, and and it's been it's just a phenomenal way to start the day. It seems like obstacles are less challenging or troublesome. I don't know. I just it's it's working out great, but. Uh, we need to be in prayer. This is from Newsweek.com, and I'm going to hit this quickly because Stephen Minking is with us. Sex robots could empower pedophiles and sex offenders. Now, this is an op-ed from Newsweek.com written by Xanthe Millette, uh, and it was posted today. It says, sex bots, uh, sexualized robots that have realistic human characteristics are no longer a thing of the future. I'm sorry, of science fiction. They can be purchased in various appearances and are typically female adults with customizable... Okay, we're going to skip that sentence. Next sentence. Childlike robot models, sometimes referred to as pedobots... Yep, yep, I'm glad you brought this up. ...are produced by at least one company. Joe, I'm going to hand it to you right away, but... but I got a question for you, though. Jump in, brother, jump in. Okay, so a lot of people have problems with these sex dolls that are made to look like minors and absolutely understandably so now my question is having those dolls will that lead to more pedophilia on children or will that cut down because they have these dolls that's the question okay that's an excellent question and and it ties back into what i consider the the liberal mindset conundrum which is instead of addressing the root of a problem Mm -hmm. they extrapolate the problem and Mm -hmm. they begin to address the symptoms Right. Now, in my opinion, uh, this we could we could use pornography as a model, okay? And 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 yep. so many Absolutely. men and and so many women too in the church have a, a problem with porn, and and with the prevalence of pornography, with with having a piece of black glass in your back pocket that can open up the entire world of smut, does that does that release the tendency to want to sin, Joe? No. Nope. Or does it increase the tendency to want to it sin? It increases it. And that's it the same thing it. for the for the dolls, and that's a, a great point, John. And that's where I was I was going with this because it is um it's still it's still practicing the same behavior, whether it's it's a it's a living person or not, in the mind of the person who's committing the the act, it is this there's no difference there. And what happens when they and if they get get bored with that toy uh, are they going to go look for an actual person? So, I mean... You know, not not only that, not only that, but remember, Jesus told us when he was here in his in his ministry on the earth that, that to look upon a woman with lust is to commit adultery. And that's, man, I'll tell you, with all of oh, the I different know. things that we've got to, to, to manage and trust the Holy Spirit for, that's, I mean, come on, fellas, that's one of the hardest there is. And, and so... 
I just, Joe, while you were talking, I thought about this. Imagine if you, I don't know, you were invited over to someone's home for dinner or coffee or something, and, and you found out by accident that they, what do they call these things? That they had a, a, uh, what do they call sex it? Sex doll? A, a pedo bot. That they, that they had a pedo bot. Uh, I don't know. You're not, not, not an adult sex doll, no, but a, a, okay. It, sa- it says right here, again, this is in Newsweek. This is Newsweek.com. A pedo bot, okay, a childlike sex bot, a, 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 modeled on a child. Can you imagine how how stunned you'd be? How shocked would you get up and walk out of their front door? I, I I would hope that you would. But Joe, here's what's scary: is that there's an enormous contingent in our society who are so delusional and many of them so reprobate that that they think this is a good thing. I, I just I, I, I don't right. know. I, I can't get my mind around it. Well, let's do this. Let's bring our guest Stephen Menking in. Uh, we have Stephen on our daily show each Wednesday. For the second half of the show, we talk about uh, some economic stuff, but but mostly scriptural stuff. Stephen, it's great to have you on the Hagman Report, and let's pick up right where uh, me and John were talking about these sex robots that are made to look like, or they, I guess they they appear as children. Well, thanks again for having me, fellas. It's a uh incredible blessing to be with you here as always. I think in order to tackle subjects like this, it's critically important that we go to the Lord in prayer, but once again, the Holy Spirit is orchestrating all this. I usually bring a a psalm to read, and the one that I have is Psalm 51, but first prayer, uh, just like you said, John, we could all do with a reminder to pray at all intervals. We are instructed to pray without ceasing, and so let's get right into that. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this time that we have and the grace that you have given us to speak of your name, of your goodness, Jesus, and of your hand that is extended towards all those, Lord, who have not yet accepted you as their Lord and Savior. God, we know that your will is that all should come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and repentance and a newness of life and being truly born again. But Lord, we pray for your forgiveness where we have failed. We pray for your mercy on our loved ones who do not know you. We pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out into this world. Lord, wherever we look, wherever we turn, it seems as if we are drifting further and further away from you, and even more aggressively than drifting, Lord, careening and plummeting away from your grace and from the position of holiness that you have called us into. And so, Lord, you instructed us to put on your righteousness, Jesus. It's all you. It has to be all of you and none of us. Let us decrease. Let your name be lifted up higher and higher, Lord, because you said, Jesus, that if you were lifted up, you will draw all men unto you. And so, God, we pray that you would be exalted here tonight, that you would use our lives for your glory and for your kingdom, that you would reach out through your Holy Spirit and touch the hearts of those who are listening, both live and in the future. God, you are sovereign, you are holy, you are mighty, you are righteous. And Lord, we thank you for your long-suffering towards us, that we are still here yet another day, Lord, to lift your name up, to praise your holiness, and to exalt your name on high. God, be with us tonight. I pray a special blessing on the Hagman Report and all of the staff there. Lord, protect them, station angels around them, establish a hedge of protection against all of the devices of the enemy. And we oppose any curse, hex, attack, 
anything in Jesus' name. Lord, your name is the name above all names. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is our dutiful service, Lord, and our pleasure to lift up your name and to give you all the glory in advance for what you're doing, even here and even now, God. We thank you for calling us for such a time as this. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks All right, gentlemen. A- amen. Yeah. Pow- powerful prayer, Stephen, and welcome. Thank you for being here this evening. Well, you know, thanks, thanks for having me, guys. In when when I'm doing my preparation to talk about the economic affairs in Italy and looking at Deutsche Bank and looking at African development and the New Silk Road and everything else, and then <laughs> I come on to hear you guys talking about this other this other topic about pedobots. It's it's enough to make one frustrated with the generation that we're in and in particular with the the people who would advocate for such things uh but let's take a look at what we can control uh what we can account for and that is our attitude towards god and our understanding of who our father is so let's go right to psalm 51 and expound upon that and then if if time allows and if you guys want to, we can shift into that economic discussion, which is also of significant importance. But first with the spiritual aspect, Psalm 51 from the New King James Version. Version. This is a Psalm of David after he is confronted by the prophet Nathan for his infidelity concerning Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part, You will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that my bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Gentlemen. Amen. Wow. Uh, Stephen, I'm sorry. Finish your... Well, no, you know what? I'm sorry. You're you're our guest, and we really appreciate your time tonight. Please finish your thought, and then I'll I'll share with you mine. Uh, The only thought I really have, because the Scripture speaks for itself, particularly in this clarity, that we can 
go this way and that, to and fro, searching knowledge and everything else. But, gentlemen and everyone watching, if we don't have that contrite spirit, that brokenness in heart at what we see in our generation, and if we don't endeavor to attain to the righteousness of God that he has called us into each individually then we are not going to be able to be equipped and to receive from God the boldness and the courage that's necessary to stand in a generation and what you'll notice and I'll pass it back to you John I guess a secondary thought here is that for many on social media or in commentary or in the independent media there, there are ways to sort of get into an autopilot and in this case, in, in our case, it's an autopilot of desiring to fight for righteousness and of staring into the abyss and going back and forth with people, institutions, and even entire subsets of the population who aren't having any of it. And at, at times, it can feel like we're just pounding our fists into the sand without making much of a difference. But I would encourage everyone to listen and remember what David writes in Psalm 51, that when we approach God with that spirit of repentance and we receive his righteousness and the blotting out of our sins, then we will receive the joy and the power of the Holy Spirit to teach transgressors, to teach sinners the ways, the ways of God from our own testimony. I, I rebelled against God. I was, a, I was a sinner and God forgave me. Thank heaven. Amen. Thank heaven he did. Yes, sir, and that's and I, I I think I'm safe speaking for for Joe here as well. That's something that we are, uh, we, we, we're pretty good buddies, and that's something that we're humbled by regularly. Is is to be in a in a, a position to to try to inform or, or nourish the kingdom, but at the same time being repentant sinners who are absolutely going through the sanctification process every single day. Speaking just for myself here, and Stephen, you and I had a brief discussion uh, offline a couple of hours ago and I told you that we've got this this uh this Standeo expedition uh update coming here later in the program and we're really looking forward to that uh and and I was telling you that that over the past week or two I I've been reminded uh, I believe the Lord has been reminding my heart that we have a charge to keep here and it is to yes we have to cover things like last night with uh, our explosive interview with with Craig Sawyer and the issue going on in Tucson with the the trafficking, etc. But that's dark stuff, and it's and it's it becomes overwhelming for people, and I know that it becomes overwhelming for me. And so I thought an interesting place for us to start tonight would, since we kind of have an Africa theme to this evening, would be to talk about how people can get involved. And and uh, the, over this weekend, I did Soaring Eagle Radio with Pastor Mike Spalding, and we talked about the the first fruits uh, approach that we're learning and we're we're in a learning process here to to employ here at the Hagman report whereby we are blessed to keep the lights on etc and then we we help others and we bring them on the program and we share their stories etc and and I know this from personal experience uh, building the stories but also uh, using a portion of my resources to, to to participate every single time that we bring somebody on and there's a donation type issue I always participate because I think that that's the honorable thing to do 
if if we're structuring it. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off track. The point here, Stephen, is the concept of, of micro-loans. I find this so fascinating. I first saw a documentary about it back in like 2006. And I'm looking at uh, the Global Giving Foundation Incorporated. Now, listeners and viewers, I have no clue who the Global Giving uh, Foundation is. But the headline of the article caught my eye. 1,000 micro-loans for rural women in East Africa. And when Stan and uh, Jared and uh, Christina join us uh, later, we're going to talk about Tanzania uh, in, in particular, in East Africa. But it says here, Stephen, and I'll hand it over to you, sir, self-sustaining microfinance initi- initiative issuing collateral-free interest-bearing loans for as little as 50 bucks to poor women in rural East Africa to start a business and to support their families. So what this model is, uh, is Americans can, people who feel bedraggled and who feel like the news here is just so corrupt and it's so overwhelming and it's such a bummer, you can actually get a one-on-one connection with these women who are oftentimes raising families without, without male support. And you can help them, Stephen, if I'm understanding this correctly, launch a, a small business. And, and they're, they're humble little small businesses. But see, that's the kind of thing that it seems to me, uh, on a spiritual level, it, it, it rebalances you a little bit. You know, it, it, it gives your heart buoyancy uh, in these difficult times. Stephen, I'll hand it to you. Yeah, I would agree with you there, John. There are many different important dynamics to think about when we're talking about microloans and the understanding of finance. First, a, first a bit of a background here. Generally speaking, it is expensive and um, not so easy to establish the kind of access to banking services that we are used to here in America, where there are banks everywhere uh, on every corner, and all it takes is a certain minimum deposit and some paperwork and some identification, and you can get set up with a bank account and to begin doing business or to manage your personal savings. And it's worth noting that there are billions of people around the planet who are totally unbanked, meaning have no access to standard banking services, or who are underbanked, meaning they have access to maybe some, or they they would be able to get involved, but they can't afford it. Uh, and when we're thinking about these sorts of things, various solutions began to crop up alongside the technology to deliver these solutions, because uh, prior to the Internet and to the digital exchange of assets and and funds and value and everything else like that, you would have to spend the money to literally establish that architecture to lay uh, communication lines and to get that infrastructure into place. But microloans, which were, I believe, originally popularized by an institution known as the Grameen Bank, they had at their at their goal the idea that people sometimes don't need small business loans of tens of thousands of dollars or their equivalents. Sometimes people, all they need to get something going is a very small initial investment to buy uh to buy some seeds or to purchase a livestock something something basic at an agricultural level and micro loans would be let's say the more formalized network of the ecosystem that would be comparable to crowdfunding so to speak except when we're talking about micro loans we're typically talking about institutions 
that are doing this. And in terms of crowdfunding, we're talking about people who are sending money or value uh, to someone or a group specifically without the expectation of them receiving that money back. And so it depends on the on the style as well as the substance. But even in situations where this kind of architecture might exist, like John, we were we were talking a couple of years ago to see if there was a way for us to get supplies down into Venezuela. Exactly exactly. And so in areas where the banking structure is undeveloped or underdeveloped, or in areas where there is civil conflict, you find that these transit mechanisms actually break down. Now, we're seeing the continent of Africa go through significant changes as we transition away, uh, hopefully, from the final vestiges of the sort of colonial model um, of resource harvesting and everything else, and into a more cooperative time of mutual development. And it isn't really discussed an awful lot here in the West, but the New Silk Road, China's One Belt, One Road initiative is inking substantial infrastructure partnerships with Africa in terms of the developments of port facilities, transport, roads, pipelines, everything else like that. And these partnerships are being built up in an ongoing fashion. And say what you want about the model, they have been uh, particularly successful in at least establishing the baseline infrastructure to, to elevate the status of many of these economies and societies. And the final point I'd make about this is that in a situation where we say, okay, in, in a microloan platform, you're dealing with a bank or some kind of high-level institution uh, that is capable of gating uh, the value or determining or clearing where it can go. Uh, if you're talking about crowdfunding, then the crowdfunding platforms will take a piece of the action, even if they're capable of delivering it quickly. Uh, but this is one of the profound use cases for blockchain technology and the transferring of value across borders in that mode and method. And it's ultimately one of the one of the core ones that convinced me that the technology was not just viable but totally transformative, particularly for the several billion people who don't have access to standard uh, banking services and who are therefore to a large extent disconnected from the opportunities that they could under normal circumstances uh, get there. Like, you know the expression, it, it takes money to make money? Well, that's the idea here and that if people could be given a a small a small boost uh, a, a little bit of a start on their way and access to to funding services the ability to buy um, and the ability to create something for themselves then they can add an awful lot of productivity so we are yes. we're seeing a tremendous a tremendous transition that is taking place in Africa it's not it's not yet done but it is it is ongoing and it's something important that people need to pay attention to because uh, to be quite honest with you John I don't think that people here in the west pay too much attention uh to affairs in Africa um apart from I suppose you know to be a little bit cynical here looking yep. at looking at news outbreaks of either uh, stuff from South Africa or uh, South Africa or the latest, or war, yeah. latest infectious disease or civil unrest. And so it's important for us to 
take account of these things, to get educated on them, and then to understand how uh, how best we can participate. And one of the yes. best ways to participate is by increasing our level of awareness and by sharing that level of awareness in, in conversations such as the one that we're having right now. A- absolutely. And, and Stephen, you mentioned the, the Silk Road, and what I'd like to, to do with your permission is is let's let's shift to that momentarily. But I just wanted to give an example, and then Joe has a, a quick follow-up for you. Back when I was when I was prepping really hardcore, okay, I would I I was my head was twisted because of the news. I was living, I mean, I don't like really admitting it, but I was kind of living in a state of fear motivation. Buy as much silver as you can. Buy another shotgun. Buy more buckets of food. And pretty soon, what wound up happening, to be perfectly frank, is I wound up with like a whole room full of supplies, and you know, I could never get all that stuff out if I had to go somewhere. Anyway, no, I get weekly deliveries of of, uh, <laughs> of goodies. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, but uh, but imagine this, okay? For all the, the gentlemen out there, imagine this. You can through some of these organizations. We're not we're not promoting an organization here tonight. This popped in my mind by talking to our upcoming guest Jared uh, Gretsch, uh, who just got back from Tanzania with Stan Dale. But imagine this, gentlemen. You could for three or four hundred bucks, you could set up a, a a person, a Christian man, no less, in Tanzania or Zanzibar or Mozambique, with, for example, a chainsaw a couple of extra chains, maybe some pairs of work gloves and one of those face shields for about 400 bucks. And then if I understand the model correctly, the the woodcutter who you set up with a little uh, you know, little humble business would then repay you over a a period of time, maybe 5-10 bucks a month. But what better way to kind of break that mind freeze of like got to prep, got to get more cuz the world then to just actually let go of it and 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 help somebody else out that you may not meet until you're in the kingdom. Uh am I getting this right, Stephen? Yeah, you are. Uh for those of us watching on video, I'm still the same person. I just took off my glasses cuz it was ref- it was reflecting <laughs> in the screen. But um to let me draw a a pictorial analogy here for you, John. Uh what we're trying to do you know the saying, give a man to fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man to fish, and he'll eat for a lifetime. In this case, the people already know how to fish, but you're buying them the fishing pole so that they can start doing that in an appropriate fashion. And there are millions of people who would start fishing, in this analogy, uh, who don't have access to this capital or these resources otherwise because they don't have a local bank branch to go, to go into where they could get a, could get a small business loan because those banks don't exist. Um, and there are many different ways that you can look into to make that kind of support. And so what you want to do in anything in the in the process of being a good steward for God's kingdom is ask yourself, what resources, God, have you given me and where will these do the most good for the most people? And so if we are helping out our brothers and sisters, you know, across different continents, then that is a fantastic use of resources. You get a lot of bang for your buck, so to speak. But it's not just about the material returns on investment, even though those are significant enough and compelling uh, compelling cases in their own right. I mean, what we have here is a transition away from the centralized institutional model of corruption and into technology enabling a society to, uh, to help, to help lift each other up in a more productive, decentralized, individual kind of environment. If people are interested in doing a bit more research on 
the formalized economic policy end of things. I studied extensively developmental economics, trying to answer the question why some countries are poor and some countries are rich. And it turns out it's a whole host of different things that we don't have time enough to get into now, but there's a fantastic book that was in part the inspiration for the Amateur Society that I host. It's called The Tyranny of Experts by William Easterly, and I give uh, Easterly a lot of credit because he is an academic economist, and he essentially espoused an unpopular opinion at the at the major developmental economic organizations and got booted for it. He basically said that the attempt to impose the Washington consensus rules of how a country must develop uh, onto underdeveloped or undeveloped nations actually backfired because it ended up trying to create this like uh, top-down foreign direct investment structure where you know you just send billions and billions in quote-unquote aid, and it doesn't end up where it needs to. And so rather than doing that and risk that top-down gatekeeper-style uh, corruption, then what what technology is enabling us to do instead, whether we're talking about microloans or cryptocurrencies or many different uh, crowdfunding kind of campaigns and and platforms is to get the funds directly to where they're going to do the most amount of good and not good and obviously I'm associated with that but we have better tools at our disposal right now than we ever have before to make a bigger difference with less and less and so there's there's someone out there who you can benefit tremendously. If you want to, you can always contact our friend uh, Darren Sweeney. He's a missionary in Mozambique who moved his entire family over there for uh, for the long term. Just go ahead and search for Darren on on Facebook, and you can get connected. And I'm sure he could point he could point you in the right direction as a as a place uh, to provide different places uh, to help support and how you can get involved in that effort. Yes, uh, I'm sorry, Joe. Quickly, I, I just want to say this: Darren Sweeney, uh, uh, go uh, connect with Stephen on uh, Twitter at on the objective, or go to ontheobjective.org. Two years ago, I had dinner with Darren Sweeney right before they left for Mozambique. I cannot think of a better person, Stephen, to encourage our listeners and viewers to get in touch with than the Sweeney family, because man, they are living like an unbelievable adventure. Joe, I interrupted you. I apologize. Well. I- I don't want to take away from, uh, Stephen, what you're talking about with, uh, you know, helping other people and, and doing so and, and being able to not only help other people, but also, uh, you know, help people to help themselves. And it is, uh, so important that we do that. But I want to ask you this. We saw some disturbing reports. We've been seeing them for a while now. And each month they come out with a, a new way to spin the headline. This, this month it was 40% of Americans don't have $400 set aside to, uh, for an emergency. And, you know, we see statistics, you know, 50% of Americans don't have anything saved up for retirement. And, you know, less than one-third of Americans have more than $1,000 in in the bank. Uh, I, I'm not sure of those statistics. I know the 40% don't have $400. But what what, is, what are we supposed to do here in this, in this country? We see the Federal Reserve, uh, obviously, the biggest manipulator of our petrodollar paper currency, we see the consumer prices are continuing to rise. The prices of food continuing to rise. Prices of, of energy, gas continuing to rise. They don't calculate the, the food and energy into in inflation, as you know, Stephen. I'm not sure how many people out there do know that. But how close are we to, you know, back in the 2008 mortgage crisis or the same kind of crisis in a, in a different 
economic area in this country, if so many people have so few disposable dollars saved up, um, are we not on on the verge of, of some kind of uh, economic crisis ourselves? Well, that case has been made for several years now, and the numbers and the math behind it haven't changed. And the problem here is debt. Uh, I did an episode of the Amateur Society uh, that I just released earlier today that's posted on your website over at Hagman Report where they're talking about the basics of debt. And, you know, when you read these statistics like this, it's not that people couldn't lay down their credit card for a $400 emergency expense. It's that they don't have, like, the net assets or wealth to do that. And regardless of whatever way you slice it, it's a it's a scary kind of position because people are in an extremely vulnerable uh, position where a, a large amount of people, and I know that we're talking to plenty of them right now, are living paycheck to paycheck. And so that means that an external shock to that system would be very difficult, if not impossible, to manage appropriately, and it would force people into different kinds of uncomfortable situations. And when we saw the financial crisis in 2008, the dynamics were a little bit different. The the more things change, the more they stay the same, though, because now instead of just a housing and stock bubble, we also have bubbles in debt of all types, student loan, auto, housing, all of it, corporate, national it, there's there's total global debt saturation and if we see the normal course of the economic cycle play out then we're going to be in extremely troubled territory now i want to address a couple aspects of things that i'm looking out for and then a couple things of what people can do in order to handle this situation to the extent that that's possible now a couple things i'm looking out for we know, like you mentioned, Joe, that if if we were calculating inflation the same way that we did back in the 1980s, made some adjustments uh, in between then and now, and if you want to see that that inflation calculation rolled forward to the present day, you can go check out the work that John Williams does at Shadow Stats, and you'll notice that inflation is you know eight to ten percent um, in in that kind of range, and it's. Uh, like, that's not something that people can deal with. Uh, even the people who have savings, if you're earning 8 to 10% consistently on something like that to keep up with purchasing power, then, you know, good, good on you. Uh, means that you're taking on a lot of, a lot of risks to be able to get there because of the way in which the central banks have flooded the system with money. But, some things that I'm looking for, particularly now in the Eurozone, is what's happening in Italy and what's happening with Deutsche Bank. First, Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank, uh, as we know, has tens of trillions of derivatives on their book. The claim is that they all net out, so everything's fine. Like, if one wins, the other loses. Everything's hedged. But that we know that, generally speaking, if people in the banking apparatus are telling us that, then it's probably not true. And we can do a little bit of extra digging and find that all of the different large banks are sort of tied together buy these derivatives because they're all counterparties of one another. They all do lending transactions with each other, and this kind of shock to the credit system when Lehman Brothers uh, was allowed to go bankrupt in the fall of 2008, that 
that led to the interbank lending market freezing up, and so nobody nobody trusted anyone anymore, and everything almost imploded. And there was the threat of martial law and the dropping of a couple trillion dollars into the system that saved the day and, sta- and staved it off, at least for the moment. But when we're looking at Deutsche Bank, we're looking at a, a huge, like the largest European bank, essentially, uh, and they just laid off 10,000 people. I had to get a new CEO. It's like a revolving door over there. And their stock price went below 10 euro, which is a significant mark psychologically as well as there are some finer points of contractual obligations where some bonds convert to equity, et cetera, et cetera. But leaving that aside, you'd want to watch Deutsche Bank pretty closely now. Um, it's been out of the news for let's say six months to a year. There was a, there was a scare back a while ago, but it got it got pushed off ostensibly by uh, additional central banking actions, but there was this recent tremor because of the political uh, mechanisms in Italy. Two uh, essentially anti uh, anti EU, more populist parties came to power, and they nominated a uh, a finance minister who has become a profound Euro skeptic, and so that roiled the markets because any sort of hint of the of challenges to the EU are taken as extremely risky because of the fragility over there. So there are different things to watch for. If you start to see some cracks in the Italian and the German and the French banking system, then know that everything is tied together and there will have to be some dramatic action taken. So that's that's what I'm looking for. And those are the, some of the same kind of red flags that I have been looking for for quite some time and for an extended period of time uh, none of those were immediately on the horizon so I kind of uh, held held tight but more importantly what can what can people do in order to insulate themselves and the best thing that people can do is to develop their own independence in terms of their skill set and their knowledge base because if you are going to be employed or employable, or if you are going to go into business for yourself, then you need to be able to do something. You, uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be something unique. You don't have to come up with the idea for the next Apple or, or something else like that, but you need to be able to do something well. And in order to do that, that does take knowledge, but more importantly, throughout all of these things, it takes character. It takes the drive to know that you are capable of improving, that you are capable of developing, and that you are going to take ownership and responsibility for what's going on around you. And you can be determined to make use of the resources that uh, you're given, that you have, and that God has blessed you with. And God has given us talents. He's given all of us abilities and, and unique ones to fit the exact situations that he is calling us into. And so ultimately, this kind of proper economic stewardship, proper preparation, and understanding of the scenario, what we can do to manage these situations, regardless of, regardless of where we are in the social strata or the economic strata, we need to be pressing into God to understand, well, what is God's will for our lives? And when the Holy Spirit is leading our actions and leading our thoughts in this manner, then God is capable of providing divine opportunities, of opening up the right doors, and even of closing the wrong doors that we're not supposed to walk through. And so, gentlemen, I would say this, that 
looking at those statistics gives you a clear picture of the fragility of the situation that we are in as a people, but also the fragility of the situation that many individuals and families are in. And the response to that is, well, uh, what what should we do? And your answer to that is going to depend distinctly on your worldview. And it's going to depend on each person's individual scenario. And the only thing that I can say in blanket general terms that is applicable to everyone is that we have to seek God's will for our lives, uh, press into him in prayer to receive the skills and the grace, the intelligence and the ability and the opportunity to uh, provide for ourselves and for our families and to make the right decisions because we have to approach the throne of God with the humility that's necessary to receive the wisdom that God has for us at this time. Very well said, Stephen. And, uh, you know, we co- you covered a whole lot of ground there. And it is unfortunate the way we see uh, how our currency, and, and this is historically throughout time, this has been like this, where currencies have been manip- manipulated to the point where it brings economic ruin to all of those who are uh, basically born in to this type of system. And so few are able to to find their way out in, into uh, financial freedom. It is so important that you know we uh, remain vigilant and we continue to look into these things and also use discernment and prayer when making these economic decisions. And really, it comes down to for me, and, and I'm terrible at this. Is uh, you know what what do I absolutely need right now versus what are some of the things that I probably want more than need or, uh, in, you know, things I don't need that I find myself uh, buying. And, you know, little things like that, you make the small changes, you make the small, uh, just like anything else, it, small changes lead to, to big results. And I think that's and so important that we uh, continue to, to work towards, uh, you know, not only betterment for our spiritual life, but also for our economic life as well. Stephen, we got about 14, 15 minutes left in this interview. Anywhere you want to go that we didn't get into yet today? Well, what I would do to emphasize several of the different topics that we've been covering is just to say that we are living in a world of tremendous complication, a world of tremendous levels of information, and it is challenging, if not impossible, to deal with it all or to manage it all, and so we'll have a tendency to throw up our hands, and I mean fair enough. There, there's plenty there's plenty going on each day that would take a year to dissect and you, you don't have to look too much further than social media or the news cycle for any length of time in order to see that that's really the case and so what I'm looking for gentlemen I'm looking for on the horizon the release of the inspector general's report at least the the first component of it and everyone's going to have their hands full and then there's going to be calls from one side or the other where the the rhetoric and the hyperbole is going to be taken up to a whole nother level. And what I would say to our audience is that we need to prepare ourselves now to have the steadiness and the strength of spirit to be able to stand and to be sober-minded in such times where even righteous anger is called for. And I know you know, John, that when you would get that call from Craig or when you hear about things like this, you know, 
it's, uh, it's like you, it's like you sat down on attack and for good reason because, you know, there is the allegations or the suspicion that children are being harmed. And we know that this takes place in various, uh, various places to an extent that even hardened researchers and uh, the crustiest among us might not want to admit or even imagine. And so just know that we are in a battle with evil. And we have been in that battle since the Garden of Eden. And we are called in this generation, right here and right now, to pick up that banner and to stand firm. Now, standing firm doesn't mean acting like a buzzsaw and chopping everything up that comes at us, because we can have the wrong spirit about these things, too, of uh, of gloating and calling for violence and, and everything else and we see this all over the place in terms of uh, in terms of social media rhetoric it just kind of gets out of control when people don't think before before they speak so i would urge everyone to seek god for the peace that passes understanding because if there are bitterness and angry roots that are in our heart then at this next stage of information that gets released, there's the potential for that to turn into wrath. And when we take on wrath, when we take on that kind of posture and those kind of statements, then yes, it, it gets, it gets very challenging. So I would just implore everyone to, to seek the Lord and to understand the times that we are living in, regardless of your view on prophecy and eschatology and everything else like this, it, you don't have to look too far to notice that we are not all in unison pushing into God as strongly as we need to be. And there are people who God has called who are not following that calling. And so I would just like to encourage everyone with, the, with Psalm 51, that we read, if, if we've fallen short, and I have, we all, we all have, when, so when we fall short, when we fail to live up to our calling, when we fail to press into God, then the response that usually takes hold is the natural response. Oh, I can't, I can't go to the Word because I just did this thing that I know that I shouldn't be doing. Or, I really don't feel like praying because I just I, I just feel a little bit dirty today or I feel a little bit tired. But, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, remember that we have the unique and inviolable privilege of going to God because we have a high priest, a king who sacrificed himself, who laid down his life so that we could be free from all of those concerns and considerations that get thrown at us by our natural mind and by our enemy. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a responsibility and an obligation to die to ourselves so that we can live as heroes for the kingdom of God. And if we don't do that, then we're going to live for ourselves the way that this generation calls uh, us into doing, and we're going to die as cowards. Now, Gentlemen, those are those are bold words, perhaps, from me, someone who you could shrug your shoulders at and say, well, what have you done? Well, I'm doing the best I can. I'm doing everything that I can to follow God's calling and to be obedient, regardless of the circumstance. And it's not a perfect walk, ladies and gentlemen. Let me assure you of that. But regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the situation, 
If we are not being encouraged by the Lord on a daily basis, then we're going to be discouraged by the world on a constant basis. Amen. And the word, the word that I got at the beginning of this year, um, and then I'll toss it over to you, John, was to be overwhelmed. And so the conclusion is that we're going to be overwhelmed by something because we're not yes. strong enough in our own might to stand. So we're either going to be overwhelmed by God, by his faithfulness, by his presence, by his mercy, by his grace, or we're going to be overwhelmed by the world and its misery and violence and anger and depression. And so we have a choice to make right here and right now. Let's stop being double-minded. Let's stop going this way and that. Let's make the choice right here today, wherever you are, to follow God, to press in with all your heart, to pray like you've never prayed before, and to take your rightful place as the son or daughter of the king, the one who went to the cross for you and for me. He is worthy of it, and he deserves the full measure of devotion from each and every one of us. Amen and amen. You know, Stephen, you mentioned a moment ago about uh, getting those text messages in the middle of the night and Certainly, it's something. You know, I imagine. I hope I get more because that means bad guys are 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 getting their due, and more importantly, it means defenseless children are being are being protected heretofore. And and sitting in this sort of unique position, uh, I think it would be easy for one to imagine that that with all the data that comes across my desk or Joe's or Doug's, etc., that uh, that we would be just so burdened and just. Ugh. But 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 what we're learning, and I'll just speak for myself here. What we're learning, Stephen is that that there are there are tools that are infinite and they're in the word of god that is inerrant that is in fact god and that there are things that we can do uh we had a couple of weeks ago the uh the gentleman Brad Hop from Teshua T uh who's got this amazing deliverance ministry going on getting young uh asian girls that are unfortunately in a communist country freed from sex trafficking and from child prostitution and and we're part and party to that and and everybody that's listening or viewing tonight can find something that you see it's not it's yes we've got to pray mightily but but let's be blunt we're, we've been hearing this forever and 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 I'm the kind of guy where I'm like okay praying is absolutely foundational but give me something to do and so, I don't know, Stephen, maybe it's a stretch. You know, we had a discussion tonight about microloans, but I'm just trying to dig deep in the toolbox and think, what can we give listeners and viewers that's actionable, that, that demonstrates the love of Christ? And at the same time, I, I just have this weird feeling that, of course, I want people to tune into the show, but we need to balance that with with a spirit of giving and and a, and a cheerful spirit of giving and it's not there's something kind of benign about just scratching off a check and stuffing it in an envelope and sending it to compassion or world vision fine organizations but there are more hands-on things that you can do and i know i'm discovering this this is like a, a journey right now that the more that that i ask the lord to direct my steps and help me lord help me balance this this, the, all of these weighty subjects, and then you know, and then I craft these shows, and we do these things. Show me how to balance it, and and he is, and he's and he's bringing people like our our guests that are coming up here momentarily that are going to tell a, a phenomenal story. Stephen, he's bringing us people like you, and I don't know, I'm on a rant. God bless you, brother. I'll just hand it back to you. Well, I think John, 
there are a couple critical things to add because what you're talking about is so apropos and so important. I'm getting a little bit fired up here, so my face is kind of turning the color of this wall, which isn't necessarily the best thing, but we'll go with it nonetheless. The point is that if God is calling us to pray, he's calling us to seek his face, but then in prayer and when we when we hit that end, when we hit that hit that catharsis, then God is going to tell you, get up. He's going to tell you to go. He's going to tell you to reach out to people. And I pray that God would open every one of our eyes to the needs that are in our immediate vicinity. Because Lord knows that there are needs all around you, right in your face, right under your nose, and that if we get into a routine of doing our own thing, then we're not able to see that as well, and so it can't be addressed, because we need to make sure that things are in right order with, with ourselves, and then our immediate surroundings, and then maybe, just maybe, we can we can branch out. And so... You know, ask God what He would have you to do. Maybe your maybe your child is in is in another room and is really struggling with questions, and you know, just needs needs a little bit of time and needs needs you to be there for them to to listen. Maybe your spouse has had a difficult day or is dealing with something that is kind of not on the not on their radar, and it's a it's affecting it's affecting your relationship. Maybe maybe you've done something that you're that you're ashamed of and you haven't brought it to God, well, bring it before him tonight. Maybe there's someone across the street or someone who you know uh, who is uh, who has opposed you, who has prevented you from accomplishing things and who has stood against you for no reason and has been a thorn in your side. Maybe you need to forgive them. Maybe you need to express that forgiveness and let the outcome be in the hands of God. Maybe that's, that's the testimony that you can provide of God's love. Remember, the gentleman, we will be the only Bible that many people ever read. And that's an incredibly important responsibility that we have to model the character of Christ, even if it pains us to do so because our flesh wants to react in so many different ways. There are so many different opportunities that God will present to us each and every day for small things. And this isn't sort of touchy-feely, just stuff like that. You can change someone's life with something that you thought was totally inconsequential. And in order to do that properly, we need to be driven not by our own understanding, but by trusting in God for everything. And that comes from time in prayer. It comes from time in the Word. It comes from doing everything that that we can to trust in God, to allow ourselves to be uh, cleaned out and made righteous and to follow His pattern of holiness. But the solutions are out there because we serve the One who has made a way for freedom, for deliverance, for righteousness, for restoration, for peace, and for joy. People are looking for peace, joy, and purpose in this generation, and they just find hurricanes everywhere that they look, even inside of themselves. And so if you can model that for them, model the strength to go through trials even, maybe that's maybe that's just it. You're going through a trial now, and you, you just want to kind of lash out because it's frustrating, but you take it to God, you're, di- you're disciplined about it, and you never know who's watching you. Someone is going to be watching and will say, there's something different about this person. I couldn't go through that. Maybe there's something that they have that I don't. And maybe that something is Jesus Christ. Amen, Stephen. And uh, very well said. We are uh, just one moment, one minute away from <clears throat> our top of the hour break. Uh, what do you have coming up on the objective? Any interesting guests or, or interviews that you've got in the can that you're just waiting to post? 
Well, I did do an interview earlier today uh, with Ray Gano, who runs a deliverance ministry out of Texas. We just had one uh, with Pastor Langford. My buddy Chad Estes is on there, who runs the uh, the Texas meetings for the Salt and Light Brigade. I would be remiss if I didn't mention again uh, Pastor Mike Spaulding's conference coming up this weekend in Lima, Ohio. It's called Go Therefore. You can go to the Soaring Eagle radio website to, to get that. It's a free conference, so if you're anywhere in the vicinity and you want to go see Coach Dave and Russ Dizdar and uh, Mark Trump and a whole bunch of other people. That's a that's a great venue for fellowship. But thank you again, guys, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you as always. God bless you and God keep you in this moment in time. God bless you too, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining us, folks. You can find Stephen at on the objective and on the dot org. We're going to be right back after this break. We're going to be joined by Stan Dale as he has returned from his trip from Africa, and he's going to be on with Jared and Christina, who are the owners of BlackSeaJewelers.com. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the second half of this Tuesday edition of the Hagman Report we have Stan Dale with us. Usually he joins us in the last hour, but he is fresh off of his trip from Africa, and he has a number of guests coming on with him. Uh, they are Jared and Kristen, and they are from BlackSeaJewelers.com. And go to StanDale.com, go bookmark that website, and there you can go to the show images page. I'm going to open it up now. Yes. He has them all up there from uh, the Stan Deo show images, June 5th, 2018. And these are the images from his recent trip to Africa. And i got to tell you, man, some of these are so beautiful. We're not going to spoil it by, by showing you guys who on, on screen who might not have it up yet. We'll wait for Stan to come on so he can explain each one uh, in, in detail. But uh, many people were asking, where was Stan? Can we have an update? from Stan, uh, you know, when's he coming back? When's he going to come come on and, and tell us what happened? Well, this is it. This is when he's coming on, and it is going to be very interesting. And uh, again, what I said at the beginning of the show, I want to open with Stan by asking him, uh, I, I know in, the, in Scripture it talks about a physical location for the Garden of Eden, but I've listened to a number of lectures on different interpretations of the Garden of Eden. And some people believe it was only spiritual. Other people believe it was in the world. Some people believe that it was both a, mi- a mixture of uh, the spiritual and the physical world. And I just want to see what Stan's thought on that is, because obviously if it was only a spiritual place, he wouldn't have gone to Africa to look for the origins of the Garden of Eden. Well, here's a question for you, Joe. We know that uh, that after the original sin, after the serpent beguiled Eve, and then, of course, uh, she said, Hey, honey, <laughs> look what I found. Uh, they were cast out of the garden, and then there were, there were, uh, if I remember my scripture correctly, fiery cherubim uh, that, that guarded that, that location and, and, and prevented them from returning to the garden. Uh, Joe, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to anyway. Okay. Uh, what do you think? What do you think? Is the Garden of Eden, is it a spiritual place, kind of like, like what we think of as, as heaven, or, or, or can we go to the, the, the terra firma of the Garden of Eden? That's a good question. I don't know enough about it. I would say that if I had to guess, it was both a combination of, of a spiritual 
as we know, they had the cherubims there, and, and they were protected, and it was paradise. And through the sin and fall of man, all those protections and paradise was, was taken away, and it exposed man to uh, death. And we have Stan on with us. Stan, uh, I was just talking, about, I don't know how much you heard, but uh, since you left, I was listening to a number of studies uh, on people's opinions on the Garden of Eden, and it seemed like there was uh, three trains of thought. One was it was a physical, only a physical garden of Eden, uh, where it was just on this world. The second train of thought is that it was a spiritual garden, uh, that it was, you know, not on this world, spiritual in nature only, until the fall. And then the third is that there was, it was both. It was on the world, but it was spiritual in nature. Uh, what, what, what's your opinion on that, Stan? Well, first of all, the translations in Genesis about the Garden of Eden using modern Hebrew and then to English does not tell you the complete story. I, I'm convinced that there was a physical, is a physical garden of Eden in Tanzania where we went. Uh, I followed every clue in the Bible that I could find related to the garden of Eden and its location. Now when you talk about the fair, <coughs> the fiery, <coughs> excuse me, fiery cherubim guarding, you know, protecting the gateway to Eden or the garden of Eden, uh, you have to go into the, uh, proto-Hebrew, the old Hebrew. And in those days, uh, cherub, a cherub, it was a strong thing that moved mountains, and it was it was not a being; it was a physical um, process, and that was Kilimanjaro. Uh, they said that they were east of uh, the Garden of Eden, where you put those uh, cherubim, and you have uh, Kilimanjaro and two satellite uh, volcanoes right with it. They, the locals call it uh, Kilimanjaro; they call it um, the Mountain of Light, and. The translation of the fiery sword that, you know, the flaming sword that the angel had to, to or the cherub had to guard it really says that spiraling, sparkling fire that came up out of the mountain, which was Kilimanjaro, and that lighted, that preserved the way to the Garden of Eden. Uh, remember, Moses is writing this down uh, as God dictated to him uh, in the Exodus, and at that time, the references were to countries that were known for gold, uh, you know, various other factors. And one of those factors was that uh, Madagascar was, was known for its gold. So King Solomon got his gold uh, of the three places. That was one of the biggest ones. And that's, of course, off the coast of Tanzania. So if you put that into context, when Moses was talking about it versus when it was written, you see that um, the Garden of Eden, uh, east of that, was where Kilimanjaro is. Just follow the directions that they tell you. You and Satan walk in the hot stones of Eden. You know that, that there are volcanoes, at least 42 of them, that are now quiet uh, around in Goro Plateau. Uh, the old Goyno, the, the mountain of God, is a volcano that's still active at the northern tip of the uh, Eden Plateau, but it is a real physical place. And uh, I, in Hebrew, uh, Garden of Eden is called Gan Eden. Uh, gone is a hedged-in place so that the animals can't get to you uh, or the animals can't get out. The animals that are out with this type of thing. So the crater, the Ingram crater, is a physical place. It's got walls all the way around, circular wall. It's uh, about 7,000 feet above sea level and about 2,000 feet above the crater floor or the walls. Um, the circular walls, just like they say in the old year. So I'm, I'm 
his universe, his parallel universe, and Earth, our universe, and the Garden, possibly because something did change when um, uh, Adam and Eve sinned. They could no longer you know, like, talk or listen to God the way they used to. They knew something was wrong, that the communication had been interrupted. So at that time, maybe the parallel universe, the connection was broken. Um, but for the main part, I, I was sure that we could find a physical place where they uh, did the act of eating the forbidden fruit and where they had originally named the animals as God uh, marching in front of them saying, okay, that's an elephant, that's a zebra. Uh, Christina likes the zebra. I mean, every time we saw her the zebra, she was with the camera and screaming, ah, zebra. But anyway, uh, that was probably Adam's fault, named it the zebra. But um, anyway, yeah. So, long answer to your question, I, I positive there's a physical place today which was the remnant of the Garden of Eden and uh, we can talk about that uh, between us here about what we sensed there what we saw what we felt but we're not the first ones you know, to say it was like the Garden of Eden I'm the first one however to prove that it is the Garden of Eden many of the two million people that have been through that uh, girl creator have said it's like the Garden of Eden but the tourist uh, you know, tour companies they say comes to Africa's Garden of Eden. Well, I guarantee you, three of us have had a life-changing experience when we went to this place. It, uh, there are things you feel and see in this uh, crater that are well supernatural, I guess. That's all I can say. No, don't you think so, Jared, uh, Christina? Absolutely, Stan. It was a wonderful experience, and for all the viewers at home, uh, thank you guys for checking us out and supporting us, and what an amazing uh, trip it was to be with Stan Deo live narrating us along as we made our pilgrimage back to that, that wonderful place. It was it was quite a entrance as well. Like it looked like God is definitely was guiding us so easy and smoothly with uh, with the beginning like Stan you can you can note the names of um, the person we met in the airplane, remember? Yes, if, yes, if people go to our show images page to slide 57, you'll see me sitting there across the aisle with a guy named uh, Otis uh, Adamson. Adamson. Yes. And uh, at this time, we didn't know uh, what was at the location we were going to go see up in the north, which was uh, this mystery source of the waters. Waters of Eden came up and watered the garden, but I had to prove that there was water there. This guy had actually been there. He's a, he's a native, and he was going home for a visit. And son of Adam, you know, I thought, wow, how, how coincidental. And so I whipped out the computer. They were right there in the airplane. I said, this is where we're headed. Uh, he said, oh, yeah, that's such and such, you know. And uh, and there uh, were, like, people on behind us, like, watching, like, filming. Like, wow, that's interesting. That's interesting. And then, and then also when we were going to the lodge, remember the elephant when just stood there and just fitting? And we were just passing with the jeep, and we were like, hold on a second. As Janet was saying, this is, we're not, um, like, how can you say, fenced. We're, this is not fenced. The elephant is just right there watching us and just fitting it himself. It was, wow, the whole entrance was like, okay, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'm going to show you more. I'm going to show you more. So it was like, yeah, one after yeah, one. We felt the good Lord's uh, presence all along the trip, uh, little coincidental things that happened all, all along the way. And uh, as Christina was saying, when we uh, came up on the crater rim, just coming in from Arusha from a four-hour drive uh, from there, um, the, the place is just 
rich with trees and vines and bushes, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. You'd know that you're in the jungle, but a peaceful jungle. And as we were coming up that first time, uh, as Christina said, uh, to the right of the vehicle, there was uh, an elephant uh, probably eight feet away from us. I mean, he could have reached over and touched with his trunk. And we just had the windows rolled down and we're filming him. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was having his breakfast kind of munching along. He didn't, he wasn't bothered by us or anything. And of course, we, we find the elephant very special in, in the whole process here for the wisdom and the elephants exhibit in the memory. And, uh, so that was our first, first kind of sign that, you know, things are going to be really great and they continue to get greater all the, all on the trip. I, I can't stress enough how people need to go themselves and see what's there. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to go chair it up and bugging me for like five months to go down to Tanzania to go to the garden meeting. And I kept telling get, get lost, you know, I'm too old, too tired, I don't want to do that. It's true, isn't it, Jared? It is. You thought you were, you were retired there in your Colorado home and, and could just, uh, you know, ease off into the sunset. No, sir. You got more to do and more yeah. expeditions to go on and, and more discoveries to unearth and, uh, being with Stan this time, guys, you, you, you don't really realize it, but whenever you get with him, even for his age, he is so incredibly... Oh, my God. Um, uh, passionate. Very passionate, but he, he his mind just never stops. He wants to continue learning. He's very curious mm-hmm. about everything. So it, it was just a great experience being with Stan on this trip. You know, uh, I want to just take a quick moment. Uh, uh, Stan, welcome back. Uh, uh, John Robertson sitting in for Doug uh, this evening. Uh, I just want to introduce Jared and Christina Gretsch, uh, who are Stan's special guests this evening. And of course, we're going to, to do what, uh, what we like to do with, with dear friends of the program like Stan Deo, who really is one of the foundational building blocks that built the Hagman Report. So Stan, we will hand it over to you, sir, uh, to sort of conduct the interview and, and keep things flowing. But I did want to give Jared and Christina a proper introduction. Uh, I had the opportunity and it was really an honor to speak with Jared for a few moments offline today. And this is really, these are incredible people. Uh, this couple, as Joe was mentioning a few moments ago, they have a company. And what they do is they, they find all of the indigenous, uh, uh, semi-precious stones and precious stones and rare earths and, and precious metals, etc. And uh, Jared, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounded like you, you have a, a spiritual unction uh, through the Lord to craft these beautiful pieces, and and if uh, if our uh, listeners and viewers will go visit the website, and I've got it right here, it's Black Sea Jewelry. Uh, dot, uh, yes, Jewelers. I'm sorry, Black. Thank you, Christina. Black Sea Jewelers. Dot com. Uh, I was admiring Stan. You were talking about this incredible elephant uh, encounter. The that elephant ring. With the pretty little blue stones in it is just absolutely beautiful. So, Jared, Christina, it's your debut appearance with us. Welcome to the Hagman Report. Stand back to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, I, I hope that uh, Doug is okay. I heard that uh, he might have been a bit ill. Is that correct? He's a little under the weather. He's got a uh, business trip coming up uh, tomorrow, so he's not feeling the greatest, but. Hopefully he uh, snaps out of it and we uh, get him back to full health within the uh, the next 12 hours. I'm hoping. Well, we will keep him in our prayers uh, like people did for us when we were gone, too. Well, thank uh, you. 
Well, okay. Uh, Jared's mom, uh, Marge, is a really devout uh, prayer warrior uh, the Lord, and uh, she had a whole group of people praying for us on the trip, and I'm sure we felt the result of that uh, every step of the way. Mm. But uh, anyway, now back to back to things like uh, the elephant with the little blue stone. If people want to go to uh, their site, to Black Sea Jewelers, go to slide 40 and click on the picture there. It'll take you straight to their website, to our garden site. Now, the way this works uh, on their team over there is Jared uses computers and 3D graphics to design a piece, whatever, you know, ring, ring, whatever. And then they make a, a wax mold and uh, Christina casts it in the metal of it that you're going to have it in. And then uh, polishes it, puts the stones in it to go with the, the item. Now, for this trip, uh, Jared designed a, uh, a coin. Um, it's seven-sided, didn't it, Dr. Have you got the coin there? Yes, that's correct. You can show it. Yeah, just show it. Seven-sided, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, that has the elephant on one side, and it says about our expedition in 2018. And on the flip side, it has uh, a 3D model of the Ngoro Plateau, or the Garden of Eden, where the water flowed down to all those places. Uh, hold it right there, one, two, three. Yeah, okay. Okay, now that was uh, designed and then put into wax and then cast, and we uh, made seven of those and gave them to the thicker people there in the crater that helped us. Got the uh, rangers and uh, the head of uh, the head of the NCAA, which takes care of the, the service of the borough crater. Uh, they were pleased as much to get these, and at least seven were not numbered. There's the original seven. We're going to make numbered copies for everyone else later, but it's a wonderful piece now. Um, we got there, and uh, first day, you know, you kind of get out to, to the airport at about 8 o'clock, so you're having a clobber, they take you into Arusha. When I say they, it's Elyon Tours, uh, and that famous and Ellie, his partner, his brother-in-law, actually. And uh, they treated us like, well, I have to tell you, as soon as we got there in the parking lot, at the airport trying to get in and use the land cruiser. They had Maasai warrior robes for us. Uh, uh, and, uh, I think you've got yours there. Mine is on the way to the cleaners. I put it off here, so I'm <laughs> sorry. But it's, it's like Jared's. I read but like that. We, we got. And so they wrapped those around us, and uh, we were there as uh, special guests all of a sudden. Um, Wait, so hold on a sec, Stan. Are, are those? Did you say those are Maasai uh, warrior uh, wraps? Did I hear you correctly? Yeah. Those yeah. Are, yeah. Wow! Wow! This is going to be great. What an adventure! <laughs> yes. Oh, it was. It was a real adventure. It's kind of still going on too. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway. Um. So we uh, we went to the hotel there. Uh, what, the Maru Hotel is that the name of that hotel we went to Not there? Yes. Yeah. And uh, had a good night's sleep the next morning. Uh, I was late getting up, as usual. <laughs> Everybody was waiting for me at the meeting there mm-hmm. downstairs, but we got together and planned the, uh, the expeditions that we were going to take. Uh, one, of course, to the crater floor, to the proper garden to be down there, and to uh, another place up in the north. Uh, well, it's called Kamunana. Uh, Kamunana. No, 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 Kamo. I say I, I got it from Ellie. He said Konana, K-U-M or K-O-O-M, N-A-N-A, Konana. Okay. I had to write it. I had to write it down here. I, 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 wrote, it, I wrote it down. Let me find oh. out. You keep <laughs> on talking. I'll find out. <laughs> anyway, that place. Uh, while we were 
preparing to go over to Tanzania, I discovered that I was plotting to find a low point, the lowest point where the water would come from, this uh, northwestern part of the crater, or of the plateau. And uh, I found that there was a square, a perfect square down there at uh, 9,630 feet altitude. And then at uh, one foot from that, the square got a little bit bigger and a little bit uh, more rectangular and so forth, up for probably another 10 or 15 feet. And I couldn't figure out what made these square impressions that you can't see visually, but you can see it if you contour it in uh, Google Earth. So, you know, that was an expedition that we wanted to go to for sure, to see what was there. Was it something that the Maasai used for feeding watering animals? Or was it something the Germans left during World War II when they were in the area? We didn't know. And we still aren't positive because it's underwater, but uh, we, we didn't investigate that. And that was the second expedition we needed to go on. And we also need to go to Old Divide Gorge, which is outside, about five miles outside the Indoro Crater, very deep, to see where the hominid man was discovered by the leaking stuff. That's a different kind of man than the Adamic man. The man that, uh, that God built, uh, is, is connected to God spiritually, you know, communication-wise, uh, different than just normal hominid, you know, bipedals. He had the Neshama breathed inside of him, the breath yeah. of living souls, right? Right, absolutely. So there's a difference, and uh, that's probably a cane mixed and married over on the eastern side of, uh, of the Garden of Eden, which was, they were outside of the garden when they were raised. Uh, Adam and Eve were pushed out, and they had the children outside the garden, probably in the Oval Valley. But um, east of there, when the continents were all together, was India, the Indus Valley. And strange enough, Indus, Hindu, is being the, the men shall wander as fugitives. Now, Cain was marked with the blood mark that the red mark in the front of his head so no one would kill him. And when you ask the, uh, the Bindi mark, when you ask the Indians about it, they don't know why they put that on there, but the whole Indus river valley is from the verb, you know, Hindu, meaning the men shall wander as fugitives. So we're pretty certain that's where Cain met his wife over the daughters there. Even the Prime Minister of India said that uh, yeah, Ethiopians and Northeast Africans have a common genetic bloodline with the deposit of the two are linked. That was when the comments were together. Anyway, uh, so... See, this type of narration we're getting firsthand for like seven days, guys. It was <laughs> incredible. We got fed constantly. <laughs> we stayed <laughs> we late into the night to, to get more feeding from Stan. It was awesome. Yeah. Well, actually, he's been 30 years looking for the joint. Pick up a few things to share with folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, look, anytime interrupted, you got something to say. I, I tend to waffle, waffle off, you know, but, um, well, okay. You, yeah, go, you keep going, Stan, because I really don't, I mean, uh, I, I don't even know what to ask. You, you just take it away. Okay. All right. Um, the arguments that uh, people make uh, trying to put down my, uh, my thesis on uh, this being the real garden meat is that, uh, I say that have a young Earth, young universe, that there's an era in carbon-14 or other radiometric uh, dating techniques that if we apply the centerfield shift, the very centerfield equation to this, from the Big Bang till now, the speed of light, which is a determinable factor in radiometric dating, the speed of light used to be 10 seconds faster than it is now, which meant that radiometric decay was faster, hugely faster. And so our universe, you know, might be 100,000 years old, might be 500,000, but not 15 billion. And the Earth, and the stories about uh, Garden of 
being back at uh, around 4000 BC. I, have, I don't have a problem with that, but my, my critics do. They say, oh, no, it couldn't possibly be because of dated crops, you know, by carbon-14 or by uh, various uh, gases, you know, that, that, that can decay. And um, therefore, we know it's millions of years old. It couldn't be the, the blades. That's their argument there. The second thing they think about is I, I in camp of people that say, scientists that say the Earth used to be three-quarters the diameter is now was smaller. And what caused the big flood was an asteroid that hit on the east side of India. I found that. Um, it made a crater 250 miles in diameter. Now that, that asteroid caused the Earth to, to slow, caused the skin of the Earth to crumple up and push India up to make the Himalayas in China. And it caused the Earth to expand. It heated up the waters of the deep when it broke up the fountains of the deep. And the water was hot, just like the Hebrew says, and the waters that rose up uh, they were hot, and the rain that came was because the water was vaporized by this massive asteroid impact, and it went up into the sky, cooled, and rained. And after it finished doing all that, we didn't have, you know, like a, a canopy uh, shielding us from the sun. And for the first time, we had clouds. That meant we would have a rainbow, and that's why uh, the scripture says that uh, God said, "No, I'm going to put my bow in the sky, so you'll know that I won't do this again." But that's, that's what did that. And it also took away the shielding uh, for our bodies from ultraviolet, uh, from the sun. And, of course, we aged quicker. And so instead of being able to live eight or 900 years, we were cut down to about 120 maximum. Anyway, all that, these are the arguments they use against me. It's like, well, you can't say the Earth it was smaller and the gravity was 70% stronger and all this kind of rubbish. It's, it's impossible. So when you're dealing with that kind of a mind, it doesn't open up and say, all right, so why are you saying this? Can we analyze you're dealing with a closed mind, you're not going to win. So I'm, I'm speaking to people who will be truly scientific and say, okay, let us say the earth was smaller. Let us say that uh, the continents were together, you know, like this, and it was in recent times. If that's the case, then the argument, the rest of the argument I give you is easy to follow and easy to prove. The Goro and Goro crater in the middle of the Goro Conservancy in Tanzania is the Garden of Eden. So many people have been there visiting, like millions. Uh, even Prince uh, Charles, his son, went, went uh, there. The Clintons did too. And Obama. And Obama, yeah. Um, Very interesting. Is, well, look, uh, it, 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 is, it is, if you look at the blogs on the, the, the girl crater, you'll see people just saying, oh, it was like the garden to me. What did we notice, Jared? Uh, what did we notice, uh, the feeling there? And Stan, you guys, hold, hold that thought. What we're going to do is we are going to reconnect. Stan, your audio for some reason is coming across real low. So we're going to reconnect with you. That's why we're taking this break. And, and then, uh, our other guests, Jared and Christina, if you guys can squish together just a little bit more, we can see, um, just, <laughs> you guys are just positioned. So it's cutting off part of your guys' face. So we're going to regroup. We're oh, going to reconnect right. with Stan and we're going to try to get all this squared away. And when we come back, Hour three with Stan Deo, when Jared and Christina of BlackSeaJewelers.com. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
back to this Tuesday edition of the Hagman Report. We have with us Standeo, fresh off of his trip from Africa. Go to standeo.com. There you can click the show images page, and you click on the Hagman Report images, and you can see all the beautiful pictures that Stan had taken uh, from his trip. All kinds of great stuff from hanging out with the locals to the wildlife and on and on and on. Go to standeo.com and go to the show images and check that out. Definitely, uh, you know, I'm going to go through those tonight and really take a closer look at all this stuff, Stan, because it's a, it's a lot to, to take in in just a short amount of time, especially when we're trying to host the show. So I'm going to turn it back over to you. You were talking during the break about uh, the a place that you visited, and thanks for uh, being able to get the audio fixed during the, during the break because that was a huge help. No, we can't hear him. That's funny. All right, uh, we will. So you can see him? Okay, so Stan, I don't know what happened from the break until now. We Try that. There we go. <laughs> Try that. There I hit the wrong button. Here are your, your glasses. <laughs> okay, let's get back to business here. All right. Okay, um, uh, the the main purpose of this uh, trip, as far as I was concerned, was to make the last proof that, that this was the Garden of Eden, and that was to prove that that green spot on Google Earth up at uh, 9,600 feet or so was a source of water. And so to get there, we had to uh, go by land cruiser probably 26 uh, miles. I forget how many kilometers that is. But uh, we got up there, and then we had to get out of that and uh, go by foot, you know, trek into the... Uh, area about another three three and a half miles round trip to where we got back to our cruiser uh, at, at uh, nine ninety six hundred ten thousand feet it's it's a, a bit of a trial because the air is a little bit thinner and uh, I was kind of out of shape for that kind of a thing but it was we did uh, manage to do that and we crested over we were ten thousand feet and and we got to the edge of the crest and looked down into the area that I'd seen in Google Earth and the first thing that greeted us was numerous uh, uh, fountains, uh, you know, uh, springs that came up to make a lake there to feed, uh, you know, there to, to water the the animals and the people there, the Maasai. Uh, it was proof, and uh, we were overjoyed at that, and uh, went down 400 foot, you know, thing down uh, into the, uh, the, the the crater, the, well, the the lake bed there, and we did notice uh, there was something there. Uh, if you look at slide 86. On our show images page, it's uh, Komnana um, had an X. If you click on that uh, and see the big picture, you'll see a natural X formed in the side of the hill. And so we laughed and saying, "This is like an Indiana Jones movie. X marks the spot. We 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 found it." So anyway, you can have a bit of fun looking at that. Um, we uh, we did baptize uh, Jared and Christina. Uh, they are the first European Christians, as far as we know, to, to be there and also to be baptized in the waters of Eden. Very special privilege for you guys. Um, Thank you for that. Well, hey, that was about all I could do after all that that trek. Let me tell you, I was ready to sit down on a rock somewhere. But uh, you you can see the the pictures of this uh, the, the uh, springs. If you go to uh, slide eighty three and eighty four, you'll see uh, one of our uh, rangers there, uh, the fellow next to me in slide eighty four, I think it is, uh, Malita. And uh, behind us, there are the springs. You can see the different puddles. And during the year, various times, various seasons, that 
gets drier or more water. But that's where a large amount of water, enough to make several uh, Mississippi rivers, gushed up in the time of, of, of the Garden of Eden and flowed over. And I've traced all those things. It flowed over and down, downhill, down to the Ingoro Crater, which is all part of this whole Garden of Eden plateau. Now, um, is there anything else you guys remember about Comnana? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Whenever we got out of the the, the uh, Land Cruiser and it was time to start hiking, you know, we uh, we looked around and there were some locals there with their animals, and they all had plastic barrels on their sides, and we're talking with the guys like, where are they going? And like, well, they're going to water their their herd. Well, they're climbing uphill somewhere. And we're like, where are they going to go? And it's the direction we're going. So we're like, wow, so there is water up here. Okay, so that was more exciting. So as we start pushing through and, and trekking through, it seemed like, you know, a long time, but it happened very fast. Um, uh, the, the, a local lady appeared out of nowhere. Uh, yes. yes, yes. Just and running after us. And Jared was behind with the camera. And we were walking in the front, and she, I, I turned because I saw that somebody's just like flying down, kind of. And she was kind of like, she, she wanted to take his hand and just like apologize. I'm sorry. I know it's hard to get here. Pole, pole, make it easy, easy. Like step by step. Like we were like, wow. Like yeah, she's making it easy for us to get down those difficult pathways that the apples make. Yeah, yeah. It, there are no paths. They're just goat trails that you have to kind of find your the way right with your boots. Step. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I also go ahead. No, oh, no, sorry. Go on about the woman. Go on. Oh no, uh, the woman. She had a cell phone. <laughs> yes, yeah. we, were, we were talking to her, trying to get the name of this place, uh, Kumnana, and uh, so she was telling us that means uh, it's a question. Kumnana means uh, is this the earring? You know, a thing that they greatly prize. And so when they come over the hill and they see that water greatly prized jewel and they call it Kumnana and uh, so we were all you know intrigued with this we're talking amongst ourselves there on the hillside and uh, we hear her her cell phone ringing under her Maasai rope and I'm thinking we're at 10,000 feet in the middle of and she's got a cell phone uh, so we were we were suitably impressed with it. yeah and I remember you said call Holly let's call Holly and we were trying to call and there is no reception it's like how is this happening like 18 people are here. Like, <laughs> I, know. I know. She, I think it was that, uh, that, uh, village back down the hill we okay. saw coming up ahead that, uh, AT&T right. thing or, well, maybe something connected to that. Right. Um, so before we get, before, uh, before we get to the actual spot, after we've, you know, trekked so long and getting sunburned and, you know, everybody's tired, uh, but, you know, we're still pushing on and we're, we don't know exactly where the location is. Even the guides that maybe one has been there. Uh, they're not 100% sure of the exact location. So as we get up to the precipice and we climb over and then you can see down, you know, the guides and us, we kind of look at each other like, okay, we, you know, this is it. We can go now. So we're, I gave Stan an out because we were all so tired. I said, Stan, all right, we're here. We can go now. And he said, boy. We, we didn't trek 10,000 miles for nothing. We're going down. Exactly. <laughs> so we went down, you know, another couple hours walk down to the actual location. So Stan is a, a trooper, 100%. Absolutely. Incredible. He's incredible, strong spirit. Like, wow. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Can Stan here? Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, Holly was reminding me, I uh, kind of left part of the story out, uh, how we found uh, the guides, uh, you know, the rangers to go up to the uh, Komnana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, uh, I, where were we going that day, uh, where we stopped at that office? Uh, well, that was, that's the entrance, sorry, that was the entrance into the conservancy. That's like the headquarters for the conservancy. Exactly. And we actually went in just to ask some questions. And that's when we met Melita. And whenever you pulled out your computer and started showing them the satellite images and things, all of a sudden he called, he had called over this guy, he called over that guy. And then we had a huge <laughs> crowd around him. Yeah. And that's yeah. how pretty much the whole trip. Everywhere uh, we went, and, and Stan started to talk with them about how special their 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 country really is, and, and the pro- the jewel that they have there in the Garden of Eden. People just loved to hear his message. They mm-hmm. they wanted to hear it. They wanted to to hear more about it, and they gave us their full support. Green uh, lights, anything, yeah. And they wanted to come with us. They're like, no, no, we're going to come with you. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't want us to go by ourselves. We're going to come with you. We want to come with you on this, you know, this pilgrimage. So it was a. They were actually also filming and making pictures of the whole area. Uh, as we were going as through. We were, yes, as we were going through. Yeah, yeah so, so that was at the at the uh, Ngorogoro entrance, the headquarters there where we first met them. My question was on that day. First day. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't plan to go and gather all these people together. We were going somewhere else that day. Uh, do you remember where we were going? There was the gorge that we were going to. That was mm-hmm. the the second day. But we we remember we went there. We wanted to find out where we needed to go to get permission. Yes. Oh, right. Right. The red to get the red dirt to to maybe hike up to that special place, uh, Kumnana or the wherever the correct pronunciation is, and uh, in. Uh, then they gave us the location of the conservancy headquarters up, up there towards the uh, crater ridge where we went the next day to meet Paul. Yes. And, yeah, uh, well, yeah. We went over then to the conservancy and the, the number one guy that I had to, you know, I tried like four or five times emails and phones to reach this guy that's the director. But, uh, this particular day, I mean, he never answered me, right? So this particular day, he was down in Dar, uh, Dar Salaam. Uh, with the government doing some kind of paperwork. So his number two guy, Paul, uh, Paolo, uh, was in charge. And, uh, so we went to see him and, uh, we explained, you know, what we're wanting to do. And uh, as Jared said, I got the computer out on his desk and we filmed all this, uh, mm-hmm. in uh, 4K resolution, really good stuff that we'll be putting together in a video. But anyway, talking with him, showing him, he was impressed. You know, they all like the 3D thing where you zoom in with Google Earth and, and spin around. And, oh wow, you know, look. But uh, when we explained it all and what the importance of it was, uh, he started to smile. Then he brought out uh, gifts for us, you know, uh, these uh, metal uh, pens, the conservancies, you know, and uh, hats and maps. And and he said, now, you will need uh, rangers. And he said, I'll get uh, a lice, you know. I've got his uh, – the guys that he appointed to help us are on the show images page, uh, slide 55 shows – that and slide 56 you see Paolo the guy there on the right um, who was the deputy director at the time they gave us like <clears throat> red carpet treatment uh, we needed to go down into the crater the, where the Garden of Eden uh, is and we needed to go to what's called the Ingatati Hill mm-hmm. because that's where the, I'm pretty sure the two trees of the Bible the tree of knowledge and the tree of life were planted uh, there are two rises on it it rises up above the floor of the crater and you can see any tree on there from anywhere in the uh, the crater floor except one little spot over near a little hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and so Adam and Eve had no excuse. It was a raised area. There were two trees there. 
And don't go there. Don't get up on that. You know, you don't accidentally go up that uh, Incatati Hill and eat of the fruit. You can see it. It's a no-no. So, um, anyway, we we need to get that. But it was it was uh, specifically as we saw when we got there. There's still remnants of a a crown of fig trees at the the edge of the hill. Is that's probably the only thing surviving besides the grass there, the fig trees that are surrounding it. And when we got to the top, they had that little section that was caged off, and we asked the guys, "What are they doing?" and and you saw you saw a, a, a kind of a light bulb switch in Elias's head whenever he said, "Well, they're testing the grass here because it grows better than anywhere else." Like he was like, "Whoa!" He, so everybody just started like, Bing, "Oh my goodness, this might really be the the spot." You know, they started to get involved and get into it. So, yeah. and we asked when when was this research uh, closed, and they said a year ago. So it's definitely. It's a movement going on uh, there. Research. Research, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I know from other experience in, in Australia that uh, ground-up rocks from certain volcanic uh, deposits will make crops grow very well. And we know that the, uh, the Ngoro Crater, the Garden of Eden, once was a, a volcano taller than Mount Kilimanjaro, but it collapsed straight down and made the, you know, the, the crater floor that we've got now, the collapsed uh, crater. Um, but the fact that they are doing these tests all over the crater, especially up on Ingatati Hill, for the fertility of the ground, tells you that there's something special about it. And just as a side note, we remarked to ourselves as we were driving through the place how peaceful it felt. And, you know, you had zebras and elephants, and you had lions kind of lazing around. You had uh, lions next Elf. to animals and stuff. Yes. And they, wow. they weren't gripping at each other. They they all ate the same food, all the together. water. Yeah, yeah. That, that, Stan, and, that is unbelievable. Please continue, yeah. sir. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the the wildebeest. You've seen this on the the Discovery Channel, I'm sure. With the, the wildebeest migration every year, they go, you know, in a big circle over to Kenya, then back into Tanzania, and you'll see them falling off the cliff as they they cross across the river. And okay, wildebeest do this. Uh, zebras do this. But in the Garden of Eden, the wildebeest, the zebra, none of them do walkabout. None of them migrate. They say, well, migrate. Why do we need to migrate? we got food, weather, you know, protection. <laughs> if, only, yeah. if only we had uh, uh, emulated the wildebeest, Stan. <laughs> yeah. Humanity would be different since day one. So just to pause for a moment and give our listeners and viewers a second to catch up. Stan Dale and our special guest, debut guests, uh, Jared and Christina Gretsch, just explained that there is a place in Tanzania, Africa where predator and prey are in visual sight of one another and for lack of a better term, Stan, they're just chilling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, you know, uh, there, there, there weren't lambs there. I mean, uh, the lion didn't lay down with the lamb, but he laid down with the antelopes and stuff and the black rhinos. And I mean, you just, you just Get out of your land cruise, you look around, and they're all mixed together. And the lions, they don't go and attack, you know, healthy uh, animals for food. Uh, there's a small lion uh, population of 50 in the, in the crater, and uh, they get diseases occasionally and die off. It's the way, you know, God balances the, the, the populations. But they look for the uh, old or lame uh, members of the herd they're going to eat, and they take those, and, and 
everybody knows. I mean, the antelopes and you know all the other animals, they know that the lions are only going to take the weak or sick ones, and it's kind of the cleanup crew, but it feeds them. And because of that, I mean, these lions, we we uh, drove up to to this kind of old fallen tree. We found a whole family of them sitting there, kind of yawn, and we were about ten feet from them, hanging out the window, going, "Hey, hey," you know, smile. Uh, wow. But. Uh, the fact that they were so peaceful, just you'll see these in the videos oh, that we've got. Yeah, yeah. These pictures are amazing. I just want to uh, briefly, for our listeners, uh, this uh, episode in total will be available uh, shortly after we wrap this evening, and then the segmented piece with Stan, Jared, and Christina will be available tomorrow after 5 p.m. But the listeners who are joining us on BTR and Global Star, you've got to see these photos. They are absolutely unbelievable. Stan? Okay. Um uh, you were asking uh, earlier, saying who, who did the photos. We had, we had, uh, Jared and Christina trained on the, uh, the, the Sony, you know, 4K camera. It's a high resolution camera. Um, it was a learning experience for all of us. And then we had our cell phones. Then we had our individual cameras. We had, we have film from all sorts of devices. I've got here, I've got, uh, <laughs> like a, a one terabyte uh, disk drive full of stuff. And, uh, it, it is so just wonderful. So much of it is just like, uh, Things that people have never seen before. We, we remarked to the, the director there, or the assistant director, um, people film the animals. They do a close-up and a special the animal will release migration. But they forget all the beauty of the trees and land and rivers and stuff. There are two great rivers that fall off the, the, the northern part of the crater down into water it. And all down that uh, those rivers are fig trees. They grow in the river. Believe me, that's where Eve would have woven the, the leaves together to make her fig leaves a uh, thing. And um, anyway, it, it's just such a, a beautiful place uh, that you feel the the peace between all the animals living there together. And they just wander in between each other. It's not a herd of zebra over here and a herd of wildebeest over here. They just wander through each other. Hey, how you going? What's the news over to your side? Yeah, okay. Very wow. peaceful. Stan, Stan, you've got... I'm sorry, go ahead, Christina. I just wanted to add, like big elephants with their tusks, like passing through and they're just so gentle beasts like going oh it was oh my gosh it's absolutely incredible view and you must see it on life you should like have the opportunity to see it and experience it it's absolutely hard uh, <laughs> I've got to just I've got to figure out a way to talk Doug Hagman into sending uh, <laughs> yes. uh, a reporting team out to to Tanzania. Stan, you have the ebullience, sir, right now of about a sixteen year old. It's so awesome to hear. I'm <laughs> loving it, and I want to ask um, just to, just to shift gears a little bit because uh, Jared mentioned this earlier today, and it actually piqued my curiosity in as much as we talked briefly with Stephen Minking in the previous hour about uh, about how Christian can do these micro loans to the people of Tanzania and it's kind of an, an opportunity to pay our blessings forward etc but I want I wanted to ask uh, the three of you if you would for our listeners and viewers talk a little bit about the the spiritual demeanor uh, uh, Jared you mentioned that you were just b- b- stunned by how many Christians are in Tanzania yeah, there's something that nobody really highlights. You know, like Stan was saying, they go to Serengeti, they film the lions and zebras and things, and uh, do the safari. Yes, and great. It's a great adventure, but yeah. That and then they pretty much stop there. But whenever you go, uh, especially to the Ngoro uh, Crater and the Conservancy area there, the people you can see the kindness in their eyes uh, mm-hmm. that you don't see very frequently in the United States and. 
the sincerity whenever they really want to help you or when they shake your hand and they look at you in your eyes, you get to see they're happy people. And the majority of them actually were, were Christian folks. So uh, the the driver, Ellie, uh, that was driving us around to take us on, on the tour, uh, mentioned to us the condition of his village. And he has a 1,500-member village uh, not far from Kilimanjaro. And he says, you know, I, we work hard, we, we want to grow crops and feed our family, but water is a big problem. And just talking with him, we could see, I mean, we have, you know, in the United States, we just leave the water running, we don't even think about it, but he, all he wants is water, you know. And uh, he said, if we could dig a, a well to 70 feet or 70 meters, whatever it was, Stan, uh, he said we could, feed, we could water the whole village, 1,500 people, so we're... We're thinking, bing, here we go. You know, we're looking. We are. We were already thinking about uh, char- giving charity to the conservancy, perhaps to their local church there. But this was just one thing that we absolutely can do and are going to do. Uh, get with Ellie. He's going going to be the one kind of getting the quotes on uh, those type of things, and we'll start a, a GoFundMe page then, if, if that's what you suggested, or something similar, and we'll start a hundred percent gathering funds together to. To do these wells, so Jared, yeah. I'm sorry, Stan. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. Wait, no, go ahead, go ahead. Well, Jared, I wanted to ask Christina and yourself. Uh, just, I was able to infer from our conversation earlier today that that you're really two global travelers. You've you've been a number of places, and this this area of this crater sounds so unique. Have you been either of you in any other place on the planet that had the same serenity or the same uh, unique spiritual wealth? Okay. No, I would say no. I mean, I've been to Israel and uh, traveled all around there. Had, you know, uh, there's definitely a, a different sense there. Uh, you know, when you're in the Galilee area, you can kind of sense Jesus' presence there to some uh, levels. Uh, this place was beyond words. It, it um, you know, as we were kind of leading up to the climax of the trip, which was actually going down into the crater, which we did on the last day, or, or, the, or one of the last days that we were there. Um, it, as you enter into the, the the red dirt trail mm-hmm. and the bright green acacia trees, mm-hmm. mount you know co- cover over the trail, oh. and a, yeah, the, like Christina was saying, the the fog every morning covered the area, wet the whole ground, uh, made everything very vibrant and lush there. Mm-hmm. And as you're driving through, it's kind of like you're entering uh, a, a natural Jurassic Park. And as you're driving down that, that rich red uh, dirt road and and opens up and you see just all the animals that he that Stan talked about, all the different uh, micro uh, systems there, the, the marshlands where birds the are, birds, the cranes, the, oh my God, the hippos mm-hmm. in the pools. Uh, it's just, it just ha- has so many different animal varieties in that one spot. And it, it doesn't seem so large when you're looking up from the ridge down, but when you get down there, it's it's quite expensive mm-hmm. amazing place and no if 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 there if the garden of eden was on earth physically like stan is uh, mentioning here this is the place without a doubt and you definitely sense that when you're there mm-hmm. yeah. you, you, on, on the water on the water issue there we did see uh, people all through Tanzania in that area where we were from Arusha up into the, the Ngoro Plateau, they would collect water from some well maybe two, three, four kilometers away in little 20 liter 
uh, plastic uh, containers and either carry it themselves on their back or on a donkey. And and you had to do that every morning just for your morning, your day's water. You had to go hike and get that and carry it back. And it just it, it changes your life when you see this for real. That all these people need is just a water supply. Uh, and, and even these things they bring back, these twenty liter things of water, they will boil it, they will purify it, you know, the, just like we would, and uh, so they don't get sick from well water and things like that. Um, so I know that uh, we need to do something to help them. And and Ellie, our our guy, hey, Stan, with, uh, I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but did you say earlier that uh, people are not allowed to dig for for water that they have to get certain uh, permissions or or pay money to do that? Uh, or am I, I thinking of something else? Oh, I know you talked about the, the, the drone not having the rights over the air or being able to, to fly oh, a drone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the yeah. water, what's the, the deal with not being able to, um, uh, generate enough water? Is it that they don't have the technology? It's not in that area? Um, they, they've got a new president, uh, of the country. Uh, uh, John, um, starts with an F. I forget the name. He's a Christian fellow. Uh, if you, if you remember, correct me, Christina, but anyway. This guy is Christian. He replaced the old president who had a lot of uh, cronies in there. The first thing this president did two years ago was to fire 1,500 government employees and get out. You're just uh, corrupt and replaced it with good uh, Christian people. And the next thing he did was uh, for Tanzania, he said, okay, the rich have been paying no taxes and you've been taxed you know, heavily, so we're going to lower your tax and we're going to make the rich pay tax. So he's like the John Trump of Tanzania. I mean, just absolutely brilliant guy. Everybody loves him. And so now, if he says, uh, you know, we're going to develop such and such an area or this tribe or that tribe, they're doing it by, by steps. Uh, he's taking steps to try to get his people water and power. So don't think that they're not doing their part. They, they are certainly very industrious people, but like with Ellie's Village, they are remote. They're uh, up in the highlands a bit. And so they want to put in solar panels. Uh, they know how to do it. They know where to get the plastic pipe. They can dig the thing. They they can dig down probably 40 foot, maybe, you know, 10 or 15 meters by hand. But during the dry season, you don't get water. You have to get down 70 meters. And they've done all the research. So I'm thinking these people are industrious. They're not sitting there waiting for a handout. They just need a bit of help to get the, the tools, and they'll do it. So there's just one village. I'm sure there are others to do it. And uh, the fact that there are Muslims in this country as well as Christians, but the Christian population is in the majority, and Kenya and Uganda and all these and Somalia, all these other countries around, they're heavily influenced by the the Muslims and the terrorists. So we've got this island of Christian believers that need our help. Right. Uh, we got to do it. We have to do it. Uh, I'm going to uh, contact that John uh, Robeson's ministry there, that uh, Water for Life outreach, and uh, see if uh, if they can find us where to get uh, you know the discounts on various pumps and things we need to give those people. But uh, yeah, anyway, that was one of the big takeaways from this, other than the Garden of Eden, was they are our brothers, our Christian brothers and sisters that need our help. They really do. You know, you make such an excellent point there, Stan, and, and I, I don't want to make too blanket a, a statement, but uh, a couple of years ago it occurred to me that, that, and I was guilty of this, that I think many Americans have this strange America-centric idea of Christianity, like like all the Christians on the planet are American, and maybe there's a couple over in England, and that couldn't be further from the truth. God's children are everywhere, and the and the Good Shepherd calls his flock from all four corners of this planet. Yeah, yeah. Look, we we found um, like in our our, our lodge here, the 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 uh, Sopa Safari Lodge where we stayed on the rim. 
um, the the guy that was the general manager for it um, is his name is Dedan, like the sons of Dedan, D E D A N from the Bible. I said, you are you related? Oh yeah, yeah, we came from you know the Holy Land, and you see that with so many of the people. Are we frozen? No, we're good. Okay, I think we lost Christina. But anyway, um, Nathan, there's another guy there, Nate, the staff named Nathan. A lot of the staff had, uh, uh, you know, Judaic, uh, Judeo-Christian name. Um, and certainly, uh, uh, Ellie, our, our driver and our guide, he said that, uh, uh, their churches are a little different than ours and that they get into their, their, their uh, music and make a, a joyous noise to the Lord. Whereas we're pretty conservative in, in the states and in Europe, but he says uh, you might be surprised we're a bit active in our church. You know, <laughs> I said that's fine. I can't sing worth a darn, but I can certainly make a joyful noise. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, quick, quick, quick question, Stan, uh, uh, and then we'll bounce it directly back to you. But I'm curious uh, when the diaspora occurred. Uh, Christina and Jared mentioned traveling to Israel a, a moment or two ago. Stan, do you know, do you recall which, uh, tribe, which one of the 12 tribes would, would effectively have migrated to the area that you recently visited? Oh, no, I couldn't tell you which one. Uh, I think there's a hodgepodge of them. Uh, the, the 10 northern tribes mainly went toward the Caucasus and into Europe and into Russia. But there could have been portions of those that went across into Africa. Um, I know that uh, probably in the last 10 years, there's been a lost African Hebrew tribe that has been flown back to Israel and rejoined, uh, you know, uh, the uh, Israel as part of the family. So uh, even even Israel recognizes some of the tribes went to Africa, and of course the uh, Menelik the first of uh, Ethiopia. Uh, claimed to be the the son of King Solomon and the Queen of you know Queen uh, Sheba. So, you know, Sheba L. Yeah, that reminds me of something else. The Queen of Sheba, of course, Ethiopia and in that area. But when India connected to them, there's an area there that connected on to Somalia and Ethiopia, and that area in India has a river in it called the Sheba L. You know. Uh, Sheba God in Hebrew, uh, and there are just so many things that connect India and the Middle East, Israel and Africa together. It's just mind-boggling. If you look, you're just going to find a wealth of things. People need to go down there and do more research than we've done. I mean, it's uh, there's a lot left to find there. Uh, now that we know it's there and, and the history, if we start digging, we're going to find more. Um, it's not just you know making wells and stuff. It's finding our history for the world. And we hope that uh, UNESCO, who have the uh, in charge of the of the Ngoro Conservancy, that UNESCO will make this the number one treasure of the world. You know, you say the seven great things, but this is the number one, the first one, where man was created. And it needs to be a world heritage, whether you're Hindu, uh, Hebrew, Christian, Muslim, whatever. Garden of Eden is at the root of all these. Yes, this is a wow. world treasure. You talk about a, uh, that, that's gonna need more than a big plaque. That's a historical monument <laughs> extraordinaire. Yeah. Uh, Stan, I wanted to ask you quickly about the, the, uh, the in, intra-religious, uh, component of the, of the native people to this area. Uh, how does it break down as far as the tribalism, Islam, Christianity? Any, any idea on, on what we're looking at as far as demographics? I don't know the percentages, but the Datoga, uh, tribes. There are five basic tribes in the, the, the Datoga group. They're the 
or they have the click-click language, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. They uh, have occupied the Ngoro Plateau up until 180 years ago. They've operated, they've uh, uh, dwelt there and uh, lived there for 3,000 years. So uh, they're still pretty much to themselves and, and resistant to Christianity or Islam or whatever. Uh, the Maasai moved in from Kenya and pushed the Datoga out of the Ngoro Plateau and uh, south a bit. Uh, they had a shooting war, and the, the Maasai killed the chief, and uh, three of them actually. They're buried there in the Ngoro Crater now. But uh, so those those tribal mechanisms are kind of there. The the Maasai are probably closer to becoming Christian than than the the Datoga. They just they don't like to be uh, you know proselytized or or witness mm-hmm. to at the moment. Um, and, and then of course uh, the hunter gatherers. Uh, Christina, what do they call those those guys? That they, are they part of the Datoga, the hunter gatherers? The Bushmen. Yeah. The, the Bushmen. Bushmen. Yeah. yeah, the Bushmen. Um, so, uh, but in the towns, you have a joint culture of uh, Islam and uh, Christianity. Uh, didn't see many Jewish things, but that doesn't mean they're not there. Uh, we did find one thing that kind of tells you that the two uh, religious philosophies are, are, are coexisting happily. The toilets. You have a, a toilet with a seat and a lid like we've got at home. You know, you can sit on the toilet or do your business, whatever. But in the next little stall, there is a hole in the floor and uh, a place on a mat where you put your feet. And there's no bowl. You you know, it's kind of drop it down a hole. That's the Islamic side. Um, I, I'd hate to have diarrhea and have to use something like that. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'll say you didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, gosh. But anyway, I have, that. I just, wanted, I just wanted to add something. I remember when we asked the chief, um, how old is he? And he said, I don't know. He didn't know how old is he. I mean, how amazing is that too? And we asked him, okay, how do you remember, um, being here? And he said that his mother said, that the only thing that he remembers is that his mother told him um, when he was little that it was a big rainy storm, and this is all he remembers. He doesn't know what year we are in, how old is he. All he knows, he has five wives taking care of him, and uh, he's just sitting and eating a baboon jerky. It, it was like, okay. Like, that, wow. Yeah. Wait, hold he on a second. Wife, he was trying to proposition you to be at the sixth wife. You remember that. Christina, did you just say baboon jerky? Yes, sir. Wow. Yes. Okay, so let's, let's do this. Let's have fun for a minute. Tell us, uh, Jared and Christina a little bit about the different kinds of, of food that you experienced. What was that like? Oh no, I didn't experience it, alright? No. <laughs> we saw a baboon. We saw a baboon. It, it was already like, gutted out and just drying out on a branch of a, of a tree. And uh, a jerky was hanging out on a line between their little hut uh, houses. How would you say? Huts. Little huts. And I was like, and there are flies, big flies on them. I'm like, okay. And the the uh, women with the children, that's what I noticed. Um, they were very peaceful, sitting under the shade. Uh, just hanging out and the guys were kind of with the, um, with the bone arrows, uh, trying to hunt and show you, you know, hunting and all that. It was, it was incredible. Uh, that's what I noticed. Like, I saw peace 
children children was were very quiet that means they were fed good um they had the guys had baboon skins on them as a protection um right but as far as food is concerned we didn't we were uh recommended not to have any bush meat anything uh and so we refrained from that and ate at the at the lodge and everything was was fine spectacular food actually we we left because you know people you say i'm going on safari to africa and they're thinking oh you know, you could be grub out in the tents and uh, roughing it and, uh, you know, digging holes for toilets and only the sofa yeah. lodge, you know, it, it, where we went. Uh, it's like eating at a five star hotel restaurant. I mean, we had you know, beef and, uh, you know, chicken and uh, all kinds of normal stuff. Yes, it was great. Yeah, I mean, it, we had you know, champagne if we wanted or wine. We had waiters, you know, that also doubled as uh, singers in the, in the choir there, but, uh, um, they were just fabulous people, but uh, we would laugh, come to ourselves because w- people were thinking that we're in hardship there. It was great, you know. That it, it, it was an island of, of of European cuisine and 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 customs and stuff, right there in the middle of Africa. Oh, Stan, you're giving me wanderlust here, big time. Let me ask you this: uh, maybe a little bit of an off-center question, but did you detect while you were there, uh, Stan or or Jared or Christina? Uh, any sense that, that they have an issue there with, um, with self-medicating? Did you see any kind of, uh, indications of alcoholism or drug abuse or, uh, you know, that type thing? I mean, are they consuming, uh, the antidepressants over in this area of the world as well? No. No. They're such a happy people. I'm telling you, it's like that commercial we used to see that guy said, be happy, man. I mean, they all smiled in the street. You know, it wasn't like somebody wanting a handout from me or something. They just they were just naturally happy mm-hmm. because they don't have the stresses we've got. Yeah, and, and Ellie, our driver, specifically says he does not drink. His family does not drink. He he did sip you know a little bit of champagne one night whenever we were toasting it. You know, one of our last nights there, we had him come with us. But no, he, they they don't have the those type of issues there. Uh, they don't, of course, they don't have the, the technologies that we have here, and they were actually one of the first things that uh, I was asked, or they mentioned to us, was, "We hear you have machines where you put money in, and food comes out." You know, like it's the greatest thing. Like, oh, vending machine, Coca Cola. <laughs> yes, Coca Cola yeah, on demand. Yeah, you really have Coca Cola machines. You put the quarter in there, and, you know, or the money in it, and out comes a Coca Cola. I said, "Yeah," and then I said, "You're really going to wonder about this." I said, "You see, you're cleaning out your." Land Cruiser, washing and everything. We have places where you put money in it, you drive your car in, and it gets washed for you by machines. Wow. But it tells you how far ahead we are and how spoiled we are, really, compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, it, as I said, it's just a, an incredible, humbling experience to go there. It really is. I couldn't, I couldn't suggest it more strongly. People, you know, um, save your money. And, uh, you know, have a, a group go like, uh, you know, where Perry Stone went to Israel. Well, you went there with him, uh, Jared. Uh, maybe this could be organized where you could get cut rates and things. But, um, you know, if you had hot showers. You had electricity. Garden of Eden tour. Okay. They? Garden of Eden tour. Yeah. Well, yeah. yes. This, this, this is, Stan, let me ask you. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably really curious. Uh, it just, just, but I'm not trying to get into personal finances here, but just ballpark. Like, what about how much? Uh, what kind of chunk of change do our listeners or viewers need to put together to uh, to experience this? Jared, for the three of us, uh, 
airfares, the tour guides, and the meals and stuff, what would you say, three grand a pop or three thousand? Uh, yeah, around three. 3300 a person, 3500 a person. We also, in the package, the tour guide included lunches and things like that. Also, Sopa Lodge is, you know, a, a kind of an up there, upscale, four or five star type place. You don't have to stay at those, those lodges. There's other places you can go that's much expensive. The air ticket, the tickets were under a thousand dollars a piece. So, uh, you know, around two to three thousand dollars, you can get there, get guided tours, protected guided tours. Uh, and have your meals and, and not get sick. Uh, it's not crazy, crazy expensive. Also, we went, uh, before June and starting June 1st, the rain season ends. You know, people are out of school, kids are out of school, so the vacation, the vacation time starts, so rates do increase during the summer months. Yeah, okay. you're, you're right though. I mean, we did have the, the, the best affordable lodge on the rim. There are about five of them, but this was the, Primo site to look in the morning. You look out over the Garden of Eden. The others are kind of uh, recessed, and the ones that kings and queens go to up the road from where we were. Um, uh, what they call that, Christine? What's the name of that other one? Ingora um, Lodge. Lodge, yeah. Yeah, okay. Ingora Lodge. They charge a thousand dollars a person per night uh, for that kind of place. And for the life of me, I can't see, uh, you know, why I would want to go there because they're in the middle of the forest and they've got a view somewhere off the side but not down where we were so uh, as Jared said there are others that are, yeah. all the luxuries that cut us off with at a certain time our showers were from 5 to 8 hot water in the morning and 5 to 8 night and the Wi-Fi was only accessible in the central uh, area not accessible in the room so that place probably has all those little extra uh, luxuries <laughs> like that but I enjoy not having a television and Wi-Fi yes. in the room. Uh, Jared, did you, Jared, did you sure. just I mean, confess no, to... No. Go ahead, Stan. No, I'm just saying you're, you're during the day, you're out doing stuff. You're not going to be wanting to watch TV or do, you know, texting or whatever. You're, you're doing stuff. You don't need it. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, well, I was, I was curious. It sounds like Jared just confessed to taking uh, six hours of showers a day, uh, three in the morning and three in the uh, evening. <laughs> <laughs> At least you got clean. <laughs> showers, but this yeah, is his time for prayer moment and meditation, so it's permitted to that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but the way the, the evenings there get, get quite chilly. Oh. You know, you're up there. How high is it stand in elevation? Ten thousand is it at the ridge there? So at the at the ridge, I think we're around seventy five hundred, uh, and then it's another twenty five hundred up to the, the north, but. Down the crater floor is about two thousand feet lower, so right. around five thousand. Oh yeah. It, when the sun goes down, it does get a little chilly. You know, you need to put a little sweater on, mm-hmm. and uh, then you'll have the one of the uh, workers there come by around seven o'clock, and, and they, they have hot water bottles that they uh, like lo- socks, and they put it into your bed, like two of them. Uh, thank goodness I had my husband that we, we were keeping warm, but stand. You use those socks, those warm socks, uh, that they hit you up for the night, which yeah. is, which is a plus. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the other lodges uh, that are there, they're, uh, uh, probably, oh gosh, maybe 50 of them down off the, the, the crater, uh, down in the flats close to Arusha. So it means that you'd have to drive an hour maybe from your hotel or your motel, whatever it is, up, uh, to, the rim and over to the Old Dubai Gorge. Um, there are four other uh, 
lodges on the crater rim on the north side and south side. And um, they have lower rates, but then again, you know, um, probably not all the accoutrements that we had where we were. Um, so most of these places will pack a lunch for you. Your, your tour guide will say, okay, today we're going to Old Dubai Gorge, and then we're going to Serengeti. What would you like in your picnic lunch? And they, they, they pack a picnic lunch so full that you can't eat it all. And so your guide usually takes that, they put them all together, and they give them to the Maasai children what you what you don't use. Um, so, yeah, they, they do that, uh, you know, the, the picnic lunch business. And uh, I asked uh, Ellie, our guide, uh, how many other tour companies. I think he said there was about 300 uh, tour companies. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, they're going, you know, all the time, uh, taking people down into the crater and out into the Serengeti and various other places. Uh, some places it takes a day to get there. Just you have to get up real early and get there and then come back at, at late at night. Um, the, um, the the time of year that you go is uh, pretty important. Uh, as Jared was saying, uh, May, uh, toward the last half of May when we went, is when the rainy season is just finishing up and roads are dry and, and, and you can get around easily. But also because at that time of year people don't come there very often, uh, when we went down into the crater, there was us and maybe one or two other land cruisers in 100 square miles. You mm-hmm. know, it's like our own private thing. But yes. of June, he says, you know, there will be a caravan of land cruisers, you know, butt to butt going down the, the roads to these places. So you, you feel kind of like in a sausage factory if you go that time of the year. So you, you have to kind of plan it, you know, and talk to people with your tour guides and say, all right, I want to go there when the traffic is less because you'll enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. Stan, you, before yeah, you get. Oh, yeah. Before you guys left, you uh, were telling me that you had to get all these different uh, shots and vaccinations and whatnot. Uh, from where were you where you were, did you see people suffering from any of the ailments that you were va- vaccinated against? No, it didn't. Uh, however, I did uh, tie into some uh, ice cubes somewhere, I think it was, uh, and uh, I got to attack of the trots the last day before we were going. And uh, But it was over 24 hours. So, no, I didn't see anybody else getting sick. Okay. Uh, we did learn a lot, like, you don't wear blue clothing, you know, bright colors or, or blue clothing particularly, because the seat sea flies uh, are attracted to that, the sleeping sickness flies. Uh, so you wear tan colors, warm, you know, subtle colors. And, uh, you know, with uh, if you're going to be out hiking around uh, outside the vehicle, some do, some don't. But uh, you need to have blousing garters for your trousers to seal off your boots uh, with your this girder around your your trouser leg down at the, at the boot level to keep ants and other creepy crawlers from climbing up your leg like someone forgot to do. <laughs> Stan, quick question, uh, quick question for you. I, I can't believe I would be remiss if we didn't ask you this. For our listeners who are who are new to Stan Deo, uh, Stan Deo and his wife Holly Deo uh, are are just. Uh, a great blessing to the preparedness-minded community. Holly Deo is the author of Dare to Prepare. And, of course, you can find that at standdeo.com. Stan, when you went on these 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 expeditions, I, I have to ask you, did, did you pack some gear? Did you have a bug-out bag or an everyday carry, some some kind of go-tos in case maybe, I don't know, the, the Range Rovers break down, et cetera? Uh, anything for our prepper listeners and, and viewers? I'm gonna tell first, jerky. He had a lot of beef jerky, like <laughs> a lot. 
and we had water. We uh, we tanked up with water, and um, our uh, our guide uh, Ellie he stocked uh, extra bottles. Everybody has plastic water bottles, you know, Avion type water bottles there, um, and it's just common that people buy the bottled water. Uh, we also had an onboard uh, two-way radio, and we're never too far from um, a ranger post of some sort. So that we heard him talking back and forth to them. So we didn't feel like we were uh, ever in any danger. Uh, I did take a first aid kit, snake bite kit, and things like that. But um, other than that, um, you know, we had to, the bushcraft with our, our driver. I mean, he he's a local and knows how to do it. So... Uh, I remember one day we were in the Serengeti and we'd been around seeing the lions and the giraffes and everybody and he took us up to a nice little spot in the hillside there with shade trees over us and birds singing and, and, uh, we looked out over the Serengeti, that part of it there and he made a picnic table for us and, uh, we had, uh, fresh made coffee and, uh, oh, and sandwiches. Wonderful. It was, yes. it was and we, we could almost feel like we were back thousands of years when it was new, you know, it just, and Serengeti, by the way, in, in uh, Maasai means uh, endless plain. And believe me, that's what it looks like, endless plain. But uh, on the edges of it is where you see these trees and rivers and little small lakes and gatherings of various animals. Uh, apparently, the, the, the zebra come in a certain time of day to the water hole, and then they move off and let the wildebeest come in, and then the giraffe comes in, and they just automatically take turns. It's just an amazing system to watch, just amazing. Go. You know, we don't, we don't make any money, but go. Um, if you want to go and you need advice on it, well, we could probably tell you where to get everything you need, but, yeah. uh, You know, you see most of the, the documentaries and things like that, they, they hit the Serengeti, but rarely does anybody, uh, cover the, the most precious part, which is the Ngorogoro Conservancy. It is absolutely lush, beautiful animals. You don't have to go to the dusty Serengeti, you know, endless plain. Uh, where there's not a lot of grass the uh, majority of the year. It's very dusty. You come back covered head to toe. The Conservancy has everything for you right there, and the crater in particular has everything. It really is a, like a, a, a natural Jurassic Park. And whenever you're guided with the ranger with his AK-47, he's not there to protect you from pirates or terrorists, which a lot of Westerners might think that that stuff's going on. He's just there to make sure it, uh, wild animals don't get after you. You know, every night as we were leaving the lodge uh, restaurant, going to our room, we'd have a, a an armed guard walk us back because there's the wild animals, animals are everywhere. Mm. But uh, we were never in danger uh, from you know the terroristic or humans, but it just maybe sometimes by animals. But even even at that, it was a wonderful experience all the way around. Mm. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Is there a, yeah. lot, of, a lot of hunting? Um, the, the, the where you were at, do they do like the safaris that we see so many of the people uh, crying out about on the news uh, around here where they go big game hunting? Didn't see any. Didn't see any at all. You might see it in South Africa or down in the Congo maybe or something like that, but not where we were. They, they, everybody just peaceful. Well, that's no, and they're very protective over the land, over the animals. Yeah. Inside of the crater, you could not uh, get out of the vehicle. Well, now, we were... We went to the Office of Tourism and to the uh, Conservancy head, and he gave us special permission to go to Komnana, to go into the crater, to get out uh, at certain places. So we were given some privileges that most people aren't, but they're very, very protective uh, of the area, and rightfully so. It's a, it's a wonderful place. 
Yeah, Jared's right. Um, you know, the we got special privileges to see the uh, the three trees area where the Datoga chiefs uh, are buried. Uh, you can't go in there on the normal tours and things, but with the we had uh, three three rangers with us, and uh, we walked into there and saw the graves. And uh, it's a special place that the Datoga tribe comes to once a year for three days. They let them come back to their homeland, and they do ceremonies there to their ancestors and and whatever. But uh, so we filmed all this so that people that can't go will be able to see, you know, what it's about. And the same with Ingatati Hill, which we think the two trees uh, of knowledge and of, of uh, life were planted. Um, you can't just drive up there normally. It's part of a conservancy for uh, hyena projects and various other things. It's locked off. But, again, they let us do that, and we could film it so we could share with you what it looks like up on top and, and um and get the, the benefit of seeing the fig trees and, you know, looking out where the, on the west side where the hippos are and stuff like that. It's just, um, a number of these things that they let us do. And the good Lord was in it because we just had carte blanche and, uh, never really asked for it. They just gave it to us. And so, um, anyway, the things that you can't get to normally, we, we filmed so that you could see it. So are you planning another, uh, Safari there, or are you you gonna go somewhere else next time, Stan? Uh, what what are your future plans? We're going with Holly. Let me talk. Sorry, we're going with Holly, and we're taking the kids. <laughs> Holly, Holly, she's saying, "Oh yeah, she's waving." <laughs> oh, that's my girl. <laughs> uh, well, uh, let's say that I think that was the last Indie Deo trip for a while. Anyway, I think I'm gonna enjoy my iced tea over here in comfort. But um, anyway, yeah. Christina's thinking about going back down there and, and uh, you know, maybe even uh, getting into business there someplace and having a, a home one day, but that's where we all get rich. Stan, uh, uh, I, I, I can't help but do this to you. Uh, the Just one question off topic, but the volcanoes lately, Kilauea, and then what the heck happened? Now, you, I believe, were out of the country, but, my goodness, a, a few days ago we had this enormous volcanic eruption uh, near Guatemala City, uh, the death, what's the death, uh, count at, uh, Joe? Oh goodness, was that 65, I think, last time we saw it? And it's kind of just disappeared from the news. It's one of the it's most... Hit it's hit 70 now, Holly said, and there were several hundred, uh, that were wounded. Uh, and, uh, we have a, a friend down there, Bob, that was sending us pictures of the ash falling on his car, his yard, his dog. Um, but I do think that the volcanic activity is increasing. I am also pretty much certain that the sun is doing what I've been expecting it to do. We're going to have a very hot year and uh, several years uh, going on uh, that where the sun is going to be putting out more energy in various wavelengths than it had before. Uh, I think you'll see this year certain areas of this country will be very hot and others will be very wet, you know, like flooding and, and tremendous disparity between the two. Um, the Kilauea thing, uh, as I said to, before I left even, um, to go to Tanzania, the Kilauea thing is a matter of island building on the the uh, the state side uh, of of, uh, of the Big Island. the The movement of the crust of the Earth is slowed down, and so it's allowing the heat to build up and erupt at that spot instead of making a string of islands like it did originally. Um, I also noticed uh, what was it that they were doing the, the test, Holly, in uh, Arizona for evacuation of Californians from earthquake and stuff and volcano. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, they, they did a, a, a test a simulation of 400,000 people coming out of California as, uh, you know, escaping uh, volcanoes and earthquakes, uh, and this is a couple of weeks back. Uh, so when mainstream starts doing this, then you know the big one is at our doorstep. There are going to be massive changes in this country, and I think because of the way we've turned away from God, that the judgments are going to be heavy and uh, soon. Stan, is there an average, uh, I mean, is it normal to have, you know, active volcanoes, uh, very active at the same time, uh, you know, or is this due to what you're talking about, the increased activity from the earthquakes to uh, just the cycles of nature and uh, the spiritual forces, or is this something that we've seen before, you know, multiple volcanoes, you know, that are active going off at the same time? Yeah, there there are hundreds that are active across the planet. Um the things that are of interest are the ones that are where we have civilization, uh, you know, settlements that haven't had uh, volcanoes for a long time. These are in areas that we haven't seen them before, uh, or recently anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, the earthquakes are, are also, um, you can do the numbers and say, oh, well, the, the, the statistics show, uh, you know, a fairly level line of this value, like Richter 4s or 5s. But you go up to Richter 6s and 7s, you start to see, as I've plotted on the show before, you start to see, that we have a steady increase in these things over the last uh, hundred years, um, and the sun—the sun is the big mystery at the moment because the, the Russian data has shown uh, positively that half of the hydrogen fuel for our sun has already been consumed. It's now in uh, in a stage where it might start making a helium fusion reaction, which will put out more heat, different wavelengths, and um, you know. Because of the shortening of time, you know, that I talked about before as far as radiocarbon uh, dating, things like that, we may be seeing our sun in early stages of red giant. And just like uh, the book of Revelation says at the end, the earth and the heavens as we know it will pass away in a fiery heat, and a new earth and a new heavens will replace that. So we're looking at some massive things in the next thousand years. Uh, and the early stages of it. Stan, let me, let me do this. I, we'd be remiss if we didn't give you this opportunity. We have about a minute. Uh, Stan, this segues beautifully. If we have a coronal mass ejection, or God forbid, an asymmetric warfare attack vis-a-vis an EMP, electromagnetic pulse, uh, take about 60 seconds and tell us about EMP shield, please, Stan. Well, uh, my partner, Tim uh, Cardi, and I have uh, put together a device, about 30 different models of it, to take the high voltage that comes from a nuclear uh, EMP or from a solar EMP and take that extra voltage and put it down into ground and, and divert it away from your home and your, your instruments that are connected by plugs to your your, uh, your power supply from the mains. Um, this is necessary to protect your gear, you know, computers, cameras, anything else you know, that you have plugged into the house. Um, it won't protect things that are uh, not plugged in you need uh, special bags, Faraday bags for that. But the, the bottom line is, that's good. You save everything that you can. That It won't be zapped by the high voltage. But then where do you get the power from after that? And that's what we're working on our stage, two is trying to get uh, uh, electricity from the atmosphere to uh, supply power after the mains go down. Very fascinating. Again, folks, go to standeo.com, check out the show images page. There you can see all some of the wonderful pictures that Stan and crew took of the beautiful plains of Africa. And just a fascinating hour and a half, Stan, and thank you so much. And also uh, to Jared and to Christina, thank you so much. Their website, blackseajewelers.com. That's blackseajewelers.com. 
that will do it for us tonight. We'll be back tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone.